Still smug book talk. As ever, it's your looming undead abomination, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, bringer of blight and lord of Castle Sterling on the sound. Joining us again this week is our guest host, Obsidian Crow. How's it going, Crow? It's going great. I uh, just want to say thanks again for bringing me bringing me back. Um, we covered li- uh, quite a bunch of stuff last week, and uh, just totally dig the book talk <laughs> yeah man it was a good time so this week yeah i'm expecting well we definitely well we do we have a lot of stuff <laughs> to cover again so it'll be fun <laughs> today we'll be covering the season finale of game of thrones that's season seven episode seven the dragon and the wolf from a book reader's perspective examining crossover material book nods and new information that may inform mysteries that book readers have long speculated about there will be numerous spoilers ahead, so if you don't want to have events and information from the A Song of Ice and Fire book series revealed to you, now is your chance to topple the toaster into the tub. That being said, show watchers who crave info and context like Littlefinger craved chaos, and who don't mind book spoilers are welcome to join us. I'll try to discuss and explain things in a way that non-book readers can follow along to, and maybe your show watching experience will be enhanced by the book information. Spoilers in 5, 4, 3... Two, one. Clocking in at 81 minutes, the dragon and the wolf had a bit of everything. Great dialogue, a little bit of action, some amazing reunions, imposing shows of force, political intrigue and betrayal, dragons, just no ghost. I bet you're bummed out about that, eh, Crow? I want ghost. <laughs> it's been over a season since we've had ghost. And it's, crazy. it's crazy. I don't get it. <laughs> so what are your overall thoughts of the finale? I loved it. Um, you know, the back history of Jon Snow and his whole, or his parents. Uh, <clears throat> we've been kind of waiting for that the entire, well, since season one, when Ned Stark is taking him to the wall. He's like, the next time we'll see you, we'll talk to you about your mother. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, if only. Yeah. And so, I mean, I just thought that they, even with the pacing, and the issues that a lot of people have had. Um, I thought it was great. Same here. I really enjoyed it. Um, I like how the title was multi-descriptive, referring to the dragon Danny and the wolf John, but also referring to the dragon Rhaegar and the wolf Lyanna. And so that's exactly like... what I was thinking last week before the episode even aired. I was like, okay, it's going to be one of those two things. <laughs> right. But we got both, which is even better. Yeah. How do you think the book readers in general are liking the show story as of now? Um, you know, I have a few friends who are diehard book readers, but they 
they just treat it as its own, the show is its own thing, and they're just sitting back and cruising and, and just enjoying it. Good. Um, That's the right approach. I like looking at them as two parallel universes that yeah. have, you know, the, the details are different, but the overall story arc is the same. It's the same thing I do with The Walking Dead, you know, where I consider the comics and the TV show two separate things, like parallel existences. Exactly. And I, tr- I try to do that with um, just a lot of movie book crossovers as well. Um, you know, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, all of those. <laughs> try not to take it too you know, in depth if they don't do it the exact way the books are going. So, yep. All right. Let's, uh, let's jump into our first book crossover, which is the appearance of the dragon pit. And, uh, we have heard uh, mentioned a few times on the TV show, but this is our first time seeing it. And, um, it's obviously a really important place in the books. How is your first impression visually of the dragon pit? What do you think about it? You know, having read the books for a few years now, I I don't, I don't really know how I pictured it. I thought it was just like a coliseum type thing, but seeing it for the first time in the show was just it was phenomenal. I liked the the way it was run down and almost like uh, runes. Uh, yeah, it just shows that there's been a lot of history that has happened there. Definitely, and it's a beautiful spot they picked to film it in Spain, the uh, Roman ruins of Italica, which okay, is pretty I thought... badass. <laughs> thought it looked a little familiar. <laughs> yeah, definitely Roman ruins. Um, I was a little underwhelmed seeing it, even though I love the Roman ruins and everything, just because it's it's described as being so much bigger in the books. It's it's a you know a nitpick that they couldn't have. They couldn't have done it basically the way that it's supposed to be in the book. So I'm totally okay with it. But when Drogon, yeah, the sizing and everything, like I think what 30 knights can ride abreast through the op- the open front doors um, when the gates are open essentially. And that's just not mm-hmm. happening. You know, they're not, not they're not going to be able to recreate something that big, uh, at least not with all the dragon CGI that they already spent money on. So they needed to find a real life location <laughs> that they wouldn't <laughs> have to create out of thin air. It's like um, you, you better you better bring ghosts back before you start spending all your money on this giant doorway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so when when Drogon took off out of the pit, his wingspan basically covered the whole floor of the pit, and I was like, oh, it's just too small. But aside from that, I think it was awesome, beautiful location. It worked really well, so I was really happy to see it. I liked the dragon bones, all the you little dragon what? the little dragon bones that were scattered throughout the place that that was a cool what glad you mentioned that that was good for the effect but there's no way there would have been any dragon bones left there There there's only five dragons (laughs) um housed in the pit or four dragons at the time when the pit was destroyed and we'll talk about that in a little bit but uh there's no way there would be any dragon bones left there (laughs) (laughs) after a couple hundred years all right so we'll jump into some book information about the pits and the history of the pits and why it's significant to the story overall the world of ice and fire the targaryen kings magor the first hardly had the last stone been set on the red keep than magor commanded that the ruins of the sept of remembrance be cleared from the top of rainy's hill and with them the bones and ashes of the warriors sons who had perished there In their place, he decreed a great stone stable for dragons would be erected, a lair worthy of Beleriand, Vagar, and their get. Thus commenced the building of the dragon pit. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, it proved too difficult to find builders, stonemasons, and laborers to work on the project. 
So many men ran off that the king was finally forced to use prisoners from the city's dungeons as his workforce, under the supervision of builders brought in from Mir and Volantis. And the reason why he had to bring people in, why it was hard to find workers, because was because he killed everybody that built the Red Keep to keep its secrets secret. All the, the hidden passages and whatnot. So that's a fun little fact for you. The Dragon Pit is legendary. Everybody knows about it. Even Danny, all the way over in, in Essos. A Storm of Swords, Daenerys won. The squire Whitebeard, standing by the figurehead with one lean hand curled around his tall hardwood staff, turned towards them and said, Balerion the Black Dread was two hundred years old when he died during the reign of Jaehaerys the Conciliator. He was so large he could swallow an aurochs whole. A dragon never stops growing, your grace, so long as he has food and freedom. His name was Arstan, but Strong Belwas had named him Whitebeard for his pale whiskers, and most everyone called him that now. He was taller than Sir Jorah, though not so muscular. His eyes were a pale blue, his long beard as white as snow and as fine as silk. Freedom? asked Danny, curious. What do you mean? In King's Landing, your ancestors raised an immense domed castle for the dragons. The Dragon Pit, it is called. It still stands atop the Hill of Rainies, though all in ruins now. That was where the royal dragons dwelt in days of yore, and a cavernous dwelling it was, with iron doors so wide that thirty knights could ride through them abreast. Yet even so, it was noted that none of the pit dragons ever reached the size of their ancestors. The maesters say it was because of the walls around them, and the great dome above their heads. If walls could keep us small, peasants would all be tiny and kings as large as giants, said Sir Jorah. I've seen huge men born in hovels, and dwarfs who dwelt in castles. Okay, so in that last quote, you, we heard Jorah casting doubt upon the idea that the walls contributed to the lesser size of the dragons. Um, this could be relevant considering Archmaester Mage Marwyn mentions a maester plot to eliminate dragons and magic. And magic. Um, I quoted that a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that the dragon pit actually played a size in reducing the size of dragons, or do you think it was just a coincidence and that the dragons were already being um, manipulated to to grow less healthily by the maesters? Oh man, that's a that there's both sides of that sound <laughs> sound like they could be uh, plausible factors. Yeah, maybe factors. They're... Yeah, because when Danny left uh, Viserion and Rhaegal in her little dragon pit, they did not grow at the same speed as they did when they were exactly. free. So maybe, so maybe there's like a dual, um, you know, multi-effect. That's a going good on here from these. Yeah, pretty crazy, right? And here, Barristan is quoted saying that it was the Maesters telling us that it was the walls that made the dragons smaller. So I wonder if we'll eventually find out more about this Maester plot. And could the Maesters have been involved in the fall of, of old Valyria? I don't know. Maybe you should research it. Coincidentally, Danny had her own little dragon pit. I wonder if there's any evidence that the dragon's growth was were stunted by being in her pit in Marine. A Dance with Dragons, Daenerys II. At ground level, the Great Pyramid of Marine was a hushed place, full of dust and shadows. Its outer walls were thirty feet thick. Within them, sounds echoed off arches of many-colored bricks and amongst the stables, stalls, and storerooms. 
They passed beneath three massive arches, down a torch-lit ramp into the vaults beneath the pyramid, past cisterns, dungeons, and torture chambers where slaves had been scourged and skinned and burned with red-hot irons. Finally, they came to a pair of huge iron doors with rusted hinges, guarded by unsullied. At her command, one produced an iron key. The door opened, hinges shrieking. Daenerys Targaryen stepped into the hot heart of darkness and stopped at the lip of a deep pit. Forty feet below, her dragons raised their heads. Four eyes burned through the shadows, two of molten gold and two of bronze. Sir Barristan took her by the arm. No closer! You think they would harm me? I do not know, Your Grace, but I would sooner not risk your person to learn the answer. When Rhaegal roared, a gout of yellow flame turned darkness into day for half a heartbeat. The fire licked along the walls, and Danny felt the heat upon her face like the blast from an oven. Across the pit, Viserion's wings unfolded, stirring the stale air. He tried to fly to her, but the chains snapped taut as he rose and slammed him down onto his belly. Links as big as a man's fist bound his feet to the floor. The iron collar about his neck was fastened to the wall behind him. Rhaegal wore matching chains. In the light of Selmy's lantern, his scales gleamed like jade. Smoke rose from between his teeth. Bones were scattered on the floor at his feet, cracked and scorched and splintered. The air was uncomfortably hot and smelled of sulfur and charred meat. They're larger, Danny's voice echoed off the scorched stone walls. A drop of sweat trickled down her brow and fell onto her breast. Is it true that dragons never stop growing? If they have food enough and space to grow... Chained up in here, though. The great masters had used the pit as a prison. It was large enough to hold five hundred men, and more than ample for two dragons. For how long, though? What will happen when they grow too large for the pit? Will they turn on one another with flame and claw? Will they grow wan and weak, with withered flanks and shrunken wings? Will their fires go out before the end? What sort of mother lets her children rot in darkness? So their growth doesn't seem to be stunted at this point, considering Danny said that they've grown larger. Next up, we have a passage from A Dance with Dragons, The Dragon Tamer. Should, it's held two oxen. The corpse killer was garbed as a brazen beast, his seamed, scarred face hidden behind a cobra mask. But the familiar black arc slung at his hip gave him away. We were told these beasts are smaller than the queen's monster. The pit has slowed the growth. Quentin's readings had suggested that the same thing had occurred in the Seven Kingdoms. None of the dragons bred and raised in the dragon pit of King's Landing had ever approached the size of Vagar or Meraxis, much less than that of the Black Dread, King Aegon's monster. Have you brought sufficient chains? How many dragons do you have? said Pretty Maris. We have chains enough for ten, concealed beneath the meat. So there you go. Uh, whether or not we know for a fact that the dragon's growth is being stunted by Danny's pit in Marine, we at least have characters speculating about it and uh, assuming that that is the case. So who knows? So the first time the dragon pit is actually mentioned is in a Catelyn chapter, strangely enough, in A Game of Thrones. A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 4. High overhead, the Far Eyes sang out from the rigging. Captain Moreo came scrambling across the deck, giving orders, and all around them the storm dancer burst into frenetic activity as King's Landing slid into view atop its three high hills. Three hundred years ago, Catelyn knew those heights had been covered with forest, 
and only a handful of fisher folk had lived on the north shore of the Blackwater Rush, where that deep, swift river flowed into the sea. Then Aegon the Conqueror had sailed from Dragonstone. It was here that his army had put ashore, and there on the highest hill that he built his first crude redoubt of wood and earth. Now the city covered the shore as far as Catelyn could see. Manses and arbors and granaries, brick storehouses and timbered inns and merchants' stalls, taverns and graveyards and brothels, all piled on one another. She could hear the clamor of the fish market even at this distance. Between the buildings were broad roads lined with trees, wandering crook-back streets and alleys so narrow that two men could not walk abreast. Visenya's hill was crowned with, by the great sept of Baelor with its seven crystal towers. Across the city on the hill of Rainies stood the blackened walls of the dragon pit, its huge dome collapsing into ruin, its bronze doors closed now for a century. The street of the sisters ran between them, straight as an arrow. The city walls rose in the distance, high and strong. So even from Catelyn's description there, it looks like a bomb went off in the dragon pit. But, strangely enough, the bomb never did go off. A Clash of Kings, Tyrion Eleven. Only then did he admit Helene with the latest tallies from the alchemists. This cannot be true, said Tyrion as he poured over the ledgers. Almost thirteen thousand jars? Do you take me for a fool? I'm not about to pay the king's gold for empty jars and pots of sewage sealed with wax, I warn you. No, no, Helene squeaked. The sums are accurate, I swear. We've been, um, most fortunate, my lord hand. Another cache of Lord Rossart's was found, more than three hundred jars, under the dragon pit. Some whores have been using the ruins to entertain their patrons, and one of them fell through a patch of rotted floor into a cellar. When he felt the jars, he mistook them for wine. He was so drunk, he broke the seal and drank some. There was a prince who tried that once, said Tyrion dryly. I haven't seen any dragons rising over the city, so it did seem it didn't work this time either. The dragon pit atop the hill of Rainies had been abandoned for a century and a half. He supposed it was as good a place as any to store wildfire, and better than most, but it would have been nice if the late Lord Rossart had told someone. Three hundred jars, you say. That still does not account for these totals. You are several thousand jars ahead of the best estimate you gave me when we last met. So that's pretty crazy that there was 300 jars of wildfire underneath the dragon pit. It's a good thing that <laughs> that they found those beforehand because if shit hit the fan and Drogon breathed a little fire by accident during this meeting, everybody we love could have been destroyed, basically. They're like, yay, we're saving a lot on our budget now. <laughs> yeah, on the actor budget, yeah, yeah, for sure. That would be quite the CGI budget expansion, though, for another wildfire explosion like that. Oh, imagine. definitely. Um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm wondering where else there's wildfire throughout the city that they well, haven't found yet. He stashed it everywhere, like right. it, from what I've interpreted from the books. Um, you know, he just kind of placed it <laughs> wherever. Yeah, under the under the dragon pit, under the sept of Baylor, under the red keep, like any place of import. I imagine so. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm not rooting for the death of deaths of innocent. King's Landing civilians, but I'm kind of hoping that we see some more wildfire explosions. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Just goes off. Like, oh no, not the blacksmith. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, in Flea Bottom. 
not Gendry. <laughs> not anything but Gendry. Um, so last week we talked about Jaehaerys the First, the Conciliator, in a discussion about how Daenerys mirrored his wife, the Good Queen Alysanne, standing atop the wall. Well, in the Rogue Prince, we learn. In the year 103 AC, King Jaehaerys I Targaryen died in his bed as Lady Alicent was reading to him from Septon Barth's Unnatural History. His grace was nine and sixty years of age, and he had reigned over the Seven Kingdoms since coming to the Iron Throne at the age of fourteen. His remains were burned in the dragon pit, his ashes interned with good Queen Alysanne's beneath the Red Keep. So just a cool little tidbit of info that... Jaehaerys I was uh, cremated in the dragon pit. And as an interesting aside, Septon Barth may be the smartest, most on-point dude in Westerosi history. Look into that guy for sure. Um, the History of Westeros podcast has a really interesting episode about Septon Barth. I highly, highly recommend listening to it. Um, this guy's pretty much everything, pretty much everything that he's quoted to have said um, in his book, Unnatural History and everywhere else, um, seems to be accurate. So anytime you, anytime you hear Septon Barth, your ears should pricked up, prick up and you should pay attention to what he has to say for sure. But back to the dragon pit. This quote from The Princess and the Queen sets the stage well for the craziness that we're about to deal with regarding the dragon pit. Six dragons remained in King's Landing, but only one within the walls of the Red Keep, the Queen's own she-dragon, Cyrax. A stable in the outer ward had emptied of horses and given over for her use. Heavy chains bound her to the ground. Though long enough to allow her to move from stable to yard, the chains kept her from flying off riderless. Cyrax had long grown accustomed to chains, exceedingly well-fed. She had not hunted for years. The other dragons were all kept in the dragon pit, the colossal structure that King Magor the Cruel had built for just that purpose. Beneath its great dome, forty huge undervaults had been carved from the bones of the Hill of Rainies in a great ring. Thick iron doors closed these man-made caves at either end, the inner doors fronting on the sands of the pit, the outer opening to the hillside. Caraxes, Vermithor, Silverwing, and Sheepstealer had made their lairs there before flying off to battle. Five dragons remained. Prince Joffrey's Tyraxes, Adam Valerion's Pale Grey Sea Smoke, the young dragons Morgul and Shrykos, bound to Princess Jehera, fled, and her twin Princess Jehera's, dead, and Dreamfire, beloved of Queen Helena. It had long been the custom for at least one dragon rider to reside at the pit, so as to be able to rise to the defense of the city should the need arise. As Queen Rhaenyra preferred to keep her sons by her side, that duty fell to Adam Valerian. Later on, being accused of treason, Adam Valerian escaped the dragon pit astride the back of sea smoke, as he was about to be arrested by gold cloaks um, for supporting Rhaenys in the Dance of the Dragons, but this left four dragons behind. And that brings us to the storming of the dragon pit, which is easily the most exciting event in history relating to the dragon pit. The world of ice and fire, the Targaryen kings Aegon II tells us, it was the fear of dragons and of their presence that gave birth to the shepherd. Who he was, we cannot say, as his name is lost to history. Some suppose he was a poor beggar, others that he might have been one of the poor fellows who, although outlawed, still stubbornly haunted the realm. Whoever he was, he began to preach in the cobbler's square, saying that the dragons were demons, the spawn of godless Valyria, and the doom of men. Scores listened, then hundreds, then thousands. Fear begat anger, and anger begat a thirst for blood. 
and when the shepherd announced that the city would be saved only when the city was cleansed of dragons, people listened. On the 22nd day of the fifth moon of the year 130 AC, Amond One-Eye and Daemon Targaryen entered their last battle. On that same day, chaos and death seized King's Landing. Queen Rhaenyra had imprisoned Lord Corlys for helping his grandson, Sir Adam Valerion, escape arrest when he was accused of treason. Some of the Sea Snake's sworn swords joined the riotous mob in Cobbler's Square, and some scaled the walls to try to free the Sea Snake, only to be hanged when they were caught. Queen Helena then fell to her death, impaled on the spikes surrounding Magor's holdfast, a suicide, some said, others a murder. And that night, the city burned as the shepherd's mob marched on the dragon pit, attempting to slay all dragons within. The Princess and the Queen when a crazed one-handed prophet called the Shepherd began to rant against dragons, not just the ones who were coming to attack them, but all dragons everywhere, the crowd, half-crazed themselves, listened. When the dragons come, he shrieked, your flesh will burn and blister and turn to ash. Your wives will dance in the gowns of fire, shrieking as they burn, lewd and naked underneath the flames. And you shall see your little children weeping, weeping till their eyes do melt and slide like jelly down their faces, till their pink flesh falls black and crackling from their bones. The stranger comes, he comes, he comes to scourge us for our sins. Prayers cannot stay his wrath, no more than tears can quench the flame of dragons. Only blood can do that. Your blood, my blood, their blood. Then he raised the stump of his right arm and pointed at Rainy's hill behind them, and the dragon pit black against the stars. There the demons dwell, up there. This is their city. If you would make it yours, first you must destroy them. If you would cleanse yourself of sin, first you must bathe in the dragon's blood, for only blood can quench the fires of hell. From ten thousand throats a cry went up, Kill them! Kill them! And like some vast beast with ten thousand legs, the shepherd's lambs began to move, shoving and pushing, waving their torches, brandishing swords and knives and other cruder weapons, walking and running through the streets and alleys towards the dragon pit. Some thought better and slipped away to home, but for every man who left, three more appeared to join these dragon slayers. By the time they reached the Hill of Rainies, their numbers had doubled. High atop Aegon's high hill across the city, the queen watched the attack unfold from the roof of Magor's holdfast with her sons and members of her court. The night was black and overcast, the torches so numerous that it was as if all the stars had come down from the sky to storm the dragon pit. As soon as word had reached her that the enraged crowd was on the march, Rhaenyra sent riders to Sir Balon at the Old Gate and Sir Garth at the Dragon Gate, commanding them to disperse the mob and defend the royal dragons. But with the city in such turmoil, it was far from certain that the riders had won through. Even if they had, what loyal gold cloaks remained were too few to have any hope of success. When Prince Joffrey pleaded with his mother to let him ride forth with their own knights and those from White Harbor, the queen refused. If they take that hill, this one will be next, she said. We need every sword here to defend the castle. So I'm sure people often wonder what kind of mental bond is had between a dragon rider and his or her dragon. The princess and the queen further states, We shall not pretend to any understanding of the bond between dragon and dragon rider. Wiser heads have pondered that mystery for centuries. 
We do know, however, that dragons are not horses to be ridden by any man who throws a saddle on their back. Cyrax was the queen's dragon. She had never known another rider. Though Prince Joffrey was known to her by sight and scent, a familiar presence whose fumbling at her chains excited no alarm, the great yellow she-dragon wanted no part of him astride her. In his haste to be away before he could be stopped, the prince had vaulted onto Cyrax without benefit of saddle or whip. His intent, we must presume, was either to fly Cyrax into battle or, more likely, to cross the city to the dragon pit in his own Tyraxes. Mayhaps he meant to loose the other pit dragons as well. Joffrey never reached the Hill of Rainies. Once in the air, Cyrax twisted beneath him, fighting to be free of this unfamiliar rider, and from below, stones and spears and arrows flew at him from the hands of the rioters, maddening the dragon even further. Two hundred feet above Flea Bottom, Prince Joffrey slid from the dragon's back and plunged to the earth. The World of Ice and Fire, the Battles of 130 AC. Storming of the Dragon Pit, no true battle, where an unruly mob under the leadership of a man known as the Shepherd went mad. This resulted in the death of five dragons, the loss of both Sir William Royce and the Valyrian sword lamentation that he bore, and the deaths of Sir Glendon Good, who was Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard for one day, and Joffrey, Prince of Dragonstone. We also find out from the World Book, Young Joffrey Valerian, the Prince of Dragonstone, plummeted to his death when trying to ride his mother's dragon, Cyrax, to the dragon pit in order to save his own dragon, Tyraxes. Neither dragon survived. Wild tales and rumors followed about the deaths of the dragons, that some were hewn down by men, others by the shepherd, others by the warrior himself. Whatever the truth, five dragons died that bloody night as the mobs broke into the huge dome and found the dragons chained, and people perished in droves. Half the dragons that began the dance were already dead, and the war was not yet over. Rhaenyra fled the city shortly after. An end did come at last, but it was not the deaths of dragons or of princes that brought it about, but instead the death of the queen and the king for whom they, and tens of thousands more, had perished. Rhaenyra died first. When her husband, Prince Daemon, fell, House Valerian turned against her. With her enemies once more in possession of King's Landing, she fled practically penniless and was forced to sell her crown to find passage to Dragonstone. But when she arrived, she found a freshly injured Aegon II there before her, with his dying dragon, Sunfire. The Princess and the Queen. Mayhaps the attackers hoped to take the dragons within whilst they slept, but the clangor of the assault made that impossible. Those who lived to tell tales afterwards spoke of shouts and screams, the smell of blood in the air, the splintering of oak and iron doors beneath crude rams and the blows of countless axes. Seldom have so many men rushed so eagerly onto their own funeral pyres, Grand Maester Munkin later wrote, but a madness was upon them. There were four dragons housed within the dragon pit. By the time the first of the attackers came pouring out onto the sands, all four were roused, awake, and angry. No two chronicles agree on how many men and women died that night beneath the dragon pit's great dome. Two hundred or two thousand, be that as it may. For every man who perished, ten suffered burns and yet survived. Trapped within the pit, hemmed in by walls and dome and bound by heavy chains, the dragons could not fly away or use their wings to evade attacks and swoop down on their foes. Instead, they fought with horns and claws and teeth, turning this way and that like the bulls in a flea-bottom rat pit. But these bulls could breathe fire. The dragon pit was transformed into a fiery hell where burning men staggered screaming through the smoke, the flesh sloughing from their blackened bones. 
but for every man who died, ten more appeared, shouting that the dragons must need die. One by one, they did. So the storming of the dragon pit seems to symbolize the beginning of the end of the Targaryen dynasty. Um, as Danny said, in the finale, they were extraordinary, the Targaryens, because they had their dragons. And once they lost their dragons, they weren't really special anymore. Um, which is, you know, it's true, but they had the opportunity to forge strength through character, um, and they did not. So that's kind of sad that they needed dragon, you know, fire-breathing monsters to um, to be special when, uh, you know, like Superman has <laughs> all, the, all the powers in the world, but that's not really what makes him special. In my opinion, it's his character um, and how he decides to use the powers. Exactly. You know what I mean? So... What about the Maybe. um? What about the the eye color and the the hair? I mean, that makes them a little oh, bit. A little <laughs> that bit makes more them unique. pretty special. <laughs> a little bit special. <laughs> yeah, um, but in, you know, it, now we have the the white dragon, uh, Viserion, the ice Viserion, um, and he is, seems to be more powerful than either of the other dragons at this point. So that's we can theoretically. S- <laughs> what the speed. That just, yeah, that... crazy speed, laser blasts, um, <laughs> and, you know, blue laser, basically. <laughs> crazy sound that comes out. Um, but so if we if we do see the extinguishment or like the, the death of all these dragons again, then it could, you know, it could give them another chance to build something based on character and not on pure strength alone, which would probably be better for the realm. Oh, definitely. It's really not good to have dragons around, flying around everywhere, right? <laughs> as long as, as awesome as, as they long are. as they can control them, if it's the the undead one, that's just kind of well. I mean, for actually for all the dragons, it's kind of hard to control. Danny, right? Control yeah, that's Drogon. like why they built the pit <laughs> in the first place, wasn't it? Yeah, Didn't it, they sort of build the pit to rein them in so that they wouldn't be wasting all the uh, King's Landing <laughs> citizens and stuff. Exactly. And then it just slowly dwindled down to the size of dogs. Yeah, so sadly, um, we're probably not going to have a fun, happy Westeros, as long as there's dragons alive. You know, to be a little bit more realistic about the, mm-hmm. the situation. <laughs> <laughs> realistic, everybody dies. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, after the storming of the dragon pit, two pretender kings briefly ruled in King's Landing. Um, I don't, most people probably don't know about this. Pretty cool. The world of ice and fire, the Targaryen kings, Aegon II. Madness gripped the city after Rhaenyra fled, and it showed itself in many ways. Strangest of all was the rise of two pretender kings who reigned during the time remembered as the moon of the three kings. The first was Tristane Truefire, a squire to a disreputable hedge knight named Sir Perkin the Flea, who Sir Perkin declared was the natural son of Viserys I. After the storming of the dragon pit and Rhaenyra's flight, the shepherd and his mob ruled much of the city. But Sir Perkin call, installed Tristane in the abandoned Red Keep and began to issue edicts. When Aegon II eventually retook the city, Tristane begged the boon of knighthood before he was executed, and this he received. The other king was curiouser still, a child who became known as Gaiman Palehair. The son of a whore, this four-year-old boy was claimed to be a bastard of Aegon II, which was not improbable given the king's body ways in his youth. From his seat in the House of Kisses atop Visenya's hill, he gathered followers by the thousands and issued a series of edicts. 
His mother later was hanged, having confessed he was the son of a silver-haired oarsman from Lys. But Gaiman was spared and taken into the king's household. In time, he befriended Aegon III, becoming his constant companion and food taster for some years, before dying of poison that might have been intended for the king himself. Okay, so wrapping up our info on the dragon pit and its significance, let's just briefly mention our dragons that died during the storming of the dragon pit. There was Dreamfire, who was Queen Helena's dragon, once the dragon of Jaehaerys I's sister, Reyna, crushed beneath the collapsing dome at the storming of the dragon pit. There was Morgul, dragon of Princess Jahera, who had fled at this time. She was too young for war and was killed at the storming of the dragon pit by the burning night. Shrykos, Prince Jaehaerys' dragon, who was dead at this time. This dragon was also too young for war and was killed at the storming of the dragon pit by Hob the Hewer. Cyrax, Queen Rhaenyra's dragon, huge and formidable, killed at the storming of the dragon pit. Tyraxes, Prince Joffrey's dragon. Joffrey had died on his way, being bucked off of Queen Rhaenyra's dragon, Cyrax, in an attempt to get to the dragon pit to save Tyraxes, which we know was a failure. Tyraxes was young but strong, killed at the storming of the dragon pit. So the, um, the hand that got cut off the white after Sandor kicked the box over and the white came flying out and running at Cersei and, and everything. And who's it? Jon Snow comes up and cuts off the guy's hand and it starts crawling along the ground or whatever. And Kyburn, like a little kid, so excited, goes and picks it up. I felt as soon as I saw the hand come, come flying off, I, it made me think of that original plot from A Game of Thrones, the first book, when Jor, Jor Mormont wants to send the Alistair, Alistair Thorne back with the hand, right, exactly, for the same purpose, to show the uh, the king that this is a real issue and that they need men. Sadly, he uh, the hand was too deteriorated, right, by the time he got to King's Landing, and then even when he did get there... He had a, he had made a dick of himself um, interacting with Tyrion, so Tyrion basically told him to fuck off and never even gave him the meeting with the king that he wanted. <laughs> I, if I'm correct, is that right? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing during that or during the finale episode. I was like, hey, this kind of mirrors what happened in the first book, and uh, it's just kind of funny that now Tyrion is there, the one you know, he's one of the guys trying to convince them that hey, this hand. Right this handle strangle you, you know, with nobody. <laughs> yeah. And it's, if, if Alice or Thorne just hadn't been such a dick, you know, maybe this message would have gotten through and Tyrion would have had the power to make a big difference <laughs> way back in the day. Like this, this could all be dealt with by now. By now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I don't think Alistair could do that though. I think that's just, that's just who he was. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, probably right. Okay. Duncan, prepare to have your mind blown. Um, so here's something that I found and that I felt is worth mentioning, considering the recent events that have now occurred between Danny and John. Um, from a show standpoint, most viewers would not even know how close Danny and John are, unless you've studied the books and all of the family trees and done all of the math. <laughs> Luckily for us, a super fan on Reddit by the name of Emma Karoon has done the math for us. So here's what they have to say. <clears throat> If we know that the R plus L equals J, Danny's brother being Rhaegar Targaryen, and is Jon Snow's biological father, then that technically makes Jon and Daenerys aunt and nephew. That's not too weird, right? 
However, that doesn't take into account that being aunt and nephew in the world of Westeros, and particularly in the Targaryen family, means a hell of a lot more incest than your average family. The Targaryens have spent centuries marrying brother to sister and keeping it, quote, in the family, meaning that their DNA is much closer than the average aunt and nephew. Of course, Danny and John are still aunt and nephew, but they are also first cousins once removed, and second cousins once removed, and first cousins once removed, again. While an aunt and nephew normally share 24% of DNA, and a brother and sister normally share 50%, John and Daenerys fall somewhere in between. Targaryen family trees are a special kind of special. They look more like ladders than trees. Danny's father and mother, Ares and Rayla, were full siblings. So were her grandparents, Jaehaerys and Shara. You have to go all the way to her great-grandparents, Aegon V, Egg from uh, the Duncan Egg novellas, if you've read those, and Betha Blackwood to find a couple that was not closely related. Genetically, this makes Danny half Blackwood, a fourth Dane, and a fourth Targaryen. <clears throat> so because of all this incest, Rhaegar and Daenerys weren't just siblings. They were super siblings. Normal siblings share 50% of their DNA. Rhaegar and Daenerys shared 88%. That's approaching identical twin level of incest. <laughs> this comes down to John and Daenerys sharing 44% of their DNA. So because of all of this incest, Rhaegar and Daenerys weren't just siblings. Again, they were super siblings. <laughs> Dude, that's crazy. <laughs> Genetically, they are closer to being full siblings than to being aunt and nephew. For comparison, Cersei and Jaime share 56.3% of their DNA, while John and the Stark kids share 13.3%. <laughs> so that's a that's a pretty crazy tree what do you think dunk dude um that's i don't even yeah <laughs> i don't yeah yeah um, i don't even know how you calculate that yeah i don't even know how the guy did all the math on that but kudos to the redditor <laughs> totally man like that's some crazy math right there um i had no idea that they were genetically that close i guess i should have known based on their ancestry and all the inbreeding leading up to that point but that is crazy speaking of breeding and inbreeding and everything related <laughs> you had something else um relating to danny and giving birth right during the episode we get more talk about danny not being able to conceive children now, correct me if I'm wrong, Duncan, but I believe that in the show it was never specifically stated that she was barren, and only so in the books by the witch. That is accurate. Um, that part of the prophecy was completely left out by um, by Miri Mazdur, but I guess since Danny says it now, we're supposed to take it as canon and that some conversation must have taken place off screen where that was discussed. So, here is a passage that I found. <laughs> A storm of swords, Daenerys four. When he was gone, Danny threw herself down on the pillows beside her dragons. She had not meant to be so sharp with Ser Jorah, but his endless suspicion had finally woken her dragon. He will forgive me, she told herself. I am his liege. Danny found herself wondering whether he was right about Dario. She felt very lonely all of a sudden. Miri Mazdur had promised that she would never bear a living child. House Targaryen will end with me. That made her sad. You must be my children, she told the dragons. My fierce three children. Arston says that dragons live longer than men, so you go on long after I am dead. Drogon looped his neck around to nip at her hand. 
His teeth were very sharp, but he never broke her skin when they played like this. Danny laughed and rolled him back and forth until he roared, his tail lashing like a whip. It is longer than it was, she saw, and tomorrow it will be longer still. They grow quickly now, and when they are grown I shall have my wings. Mounted on a dragon, she could see herself leading her own men into battle, as she had Nastapur, but as yet they were still too small to bear her weight. So, Duncan, how do you feel about that? <laughs> and, uh, how Danny and John are basically hooking up. Do you think that it's possible for them to conceive? I do. I think that they probably will conceive. Um, I think John's going to die before the baby's born, and maybe it'll be a bastard just to, uh, you know, rub it in, you know, that John never wanted to uh, raise a bastard or have a, you know, father a bastard. I, I like that that clip too. That that um, sorry that that reading. Um, it's cool to hear Danny rolling Drogon around as a little baby dragon and his tail whipping back and forth and everything. It's just really cool. And yeah, it's interesting how the they how D and D left out that part of Miramas Dura's prophecy on the TV show only to mention it now in passing or not in passing, but you know off screen essentially. Oh yeah, man, I totally agree with that. Okay, so our next topic is the Night King versus the Night's King. The Night King is the TV show character, and the Night's King is the book character. And there's they seem to be totally different. Um, you, did you ever pick up on that, Crow? Oh, yeah, I totally did. Um, <laughs> while at work, I'm constantly going around with a Sharpie and autocorrecting, uh, you know, it, like on the boxes of our product and whatnot um, that we sell to the public. Um, fun fact, I work at Dark Horse Comics, just throwing that out there. Um, (laughs) so we sell all this stuff and, you know, it's just TV product, but, you know, being a book reader, I'm constant, I was constantly going around being like, this is incorrect and this is incorrect. And this is, I'm like, it's, let me add an apostrophe. (laughs) Yes, there. It's Night's King. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. So here's some quotes about the Night's King from the book. And interestingly, Night's King is only mentioned five times in the entire A Song of Ice and Fire book series and four times in the the World of Ice and Fire book. The first time Night's King is mentioned is when Bran arrives at the Night Fort in A Storm of Swords, Bran 4. Jojen gazed up at him with the dark green eyes. There's nothing here to hurt us, you grace. Bran wasn't so certain. The Night Fort had figured in some of Old Nan's scariest stories. It was here that Night's King had reigned, before his name was wiped from the memory of man. Later in the same chapter, As the sun began to set, the shadows of the towers lengthened and the wind blew harder, sending gusts of dry dead leaves rattling through the yards. The gathering gloom put Bran in mind of another of Old Nan's stories, the tale of Night's King. He had been the thirteenth man to lead the Night's Watch, she said, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, she would add, for all men must know fear. A woman was his downfall, a woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice. And when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king, and with strange sorceries he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For thirteen years they had ruled, night's king and his corpse queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Joramun of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. 
After his fall, when it was found he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of Knight's King had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. Some say he was a Bolton, old Nan would always end. Some say a Magnar out of Skagos. Some say Umber, Flint, or Nori. Some would have you think he was a Woodfoot, from them who ruled Bear Island before the Iron Men came. He never was. He was a Stark, the brother of the man who brought him down. She always pinched Bran on the nose then. He would never forget it. He was a Stark of Winterfell, and who can say? Mayhaps his name was Brandon. Mayhaps he slept in this very bed, in this very room. No, Bran thought, but he walked in this castle, where we'll sleep tonight. He did not like that notion very much at all. Night's king was only a man by light of day, old Nan would always say, but the night was his to rule, and it's getting dark. The next mention of the Night's King comes from A Feast for Crows, Samwell One. Tell me something useful. Tell me of our enemy. The others, Sam licked his lips. They are mentioned in the annals, though not as often as I would have thought. The annals I've found and looked at, that is. There's more I haven't found, I know. Some of the older books are falling to pieces. The pages crumble when I try and turn them. And the really old books... Either they've all crumbled away, or they're buried somewhere that I haven't looked yet, or... Well, it could be that there are no such books, and never were. The oldest histories we have were written after the Andals came to Westeros. The first men only left us runes on rocks. So everything we think we know about the Age of Heroes, and the Dawn Age, and the Long Night, comes from accounts set down by Septons thousands of years later. There are archmaesters at the Citadel who question all of it. Those old histories are full of kings who reigned for hundreds of years, and knights riding around a thousand years before there were knights. You know the tales. Brandon, the Builder, Simeon Star-Eyes, Knight's King. We say that you're the 998th Lord Commander of the Knight's Watch, but the oldest list I've found shows 674 commanders, which su suggests that it was written during... Long ago, John broke in. What about the others? So I find this passage particularly interesting as it calls into question everything we know about ancient history in Westeros, basically. You know, Sam is saying that half of this stuff, you know, all, all this all this stuff about the Age of Heroes, the Long Night, there was no writing, no records of this at all. It all was written down thousands of years later by Septons who, you know, had heard stories passed down through hundreds of generations, and they probably have it all fucking wrong. So it'll be... <laughs> It'll be interesting if if Bran can go back and in, in, in through the Weirwood network and find out some of the truth of any of this type of stuff. Um, who knows, man? Who knows? I love how George weaves this type of stuff into the story and makes you question everything you think you know. Just like in real life, how we don't really know much of history. You know, history is his story written by the victor. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we are told today, there was no writing at the time when it happened. So... Who knows, some of it could be true, some of it could be enti entirely fictionalized, some of it may have never happened. And of course, I'm talking about really, really old history, like pre-Egyptian history and stuff like that. And there's probably, you know, a lot of records that were lost in the fire of the Library of Ale Alexandria and everything too. So who knows, just a cool little um, little thing that George does here that kind of brings a, a bigger sense of reality and what's not, like the fact that we just don't know everything. Um, I like that. It's cool. The World of Ice and Fire, The Wall and Beyond, The Night's Watch. 
Yet over the thousands of years of its existence as the chief seat of the Watch, the Night Fort has accrued many legends of its own, some of which have been recounted in Archmaester Harmoon's Watchers on the Wall. The oldest of these tales concern the, the legendary Knight's King, the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, who is alleged to have bedded a sorceress pale as a corpse and declared himself a king. For 13 years, the Knight's King and his, quote, corpse queen, unquote, ruled together, before King of Winter, Brandon the Breaker, in alliance, it is said, with the king beyond the wall, Joramon, brought them down. Thereafter, he obliterated the Knight's King's very name from memory. In the Citadel, the Archmaesters largely dismiss these tales, though some allow that there may have been a Lord Commander who attempted to carve out a kingdom for himself in the earliest days of the Watch. Some suggest that perhaps the Corpse Queen was a woman of the Barrowlands, a daughter of the Barrow King who was then a power in his own right, and oft associated with graves. The Knight's King has been said to have been variously a Bolton, a Woodfoot, an Umber, a Flint, a Nori, or even a Stark, depending on where the tale is told. Like all tales, it takes on the attributes that make it most appealing to those who tell it. So yeah, the, the Knight King in the TV show, totally different character. Supposedly, he's you know we saw in a vision that he was created by the Children of the Forest when they plunged a dragonglass dagger into his heart. Um entirely different than the Knight's King of the books. So it's just interesting to see how the showrunners have changed this, but used similar terminology, Knight King versus Knight's King. And even though they're like, they're vastly different characters and have entirely different origin stories and whatnot. Pretty interesting. So one of my favorite parts about the episode this week um, on the season finale was all the talk about Ned Stark now, we haven't seen him since season, season one, and his book chapters were even shorter than what we saw on the screen time. Um, and I, I just really liked the way that we were able to, I think it was like three times we got to he, you know, hear Ned Stark being mentioned. Once was when John and Theon were talking um, at Dragonstone, and... Jon Snow was basically telling Theon that he's not just a star or not just a Greyjoy, but also a Stark. Now, the way I perceived that was it relates to Jon in the same exact way. And I think you guys mentioned that on your podcast, um the the, the regular episode, not the still smug. Um and then we also got to see it with Cersei and Jon talking in the Dragon Pit. And then also, which is one of my favorite quotes in the entire series, which is why I'm going to read it off, <laughs> um, Sansa tells a portion of the quote um, to Arya when they're standing on the, the ramparts in Winterfell. Um, so yeah, just Ned Stark. <laughs> a Game of Thrones, Arya 2. The direwolf, she said, thinking of Nymeria. She hugged her knees against her chest, suddenly afraid. Let me tell you something about wolves, child. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Summer is the time for squabbles. In winter, we must protect one another, keep each other warm, share our strengths. So if you must hate, Arya, hate those who would truly do us harm. Septa Mordain is a good woman, and Sansa, Sansa is your sister. You may be as different as the sun and the moon, but the same blood flows through both of your hearts. You need her as she needs you, and I need both of you. God's help me. 
Good grab, man. I, I love that quote. It's so cool to have Ned Stark back in the story to some degree and <laughs> being referenced so often. It's just, uh, it's great. There were so many, um, in this episode, there were so many throwbacks to Ned Stark. Um, so I just wanted to know how you felt about that. Uh, I thought it was awesome. Ned's one of my all-time favorite favorite characters. Um, so to hear him mentioned so frequently was really cool. And I liked how when John and Theon were talking... <laughs> and he said, you know, you betrayed our father. And Theon's like, I did. I'm so sorry. You know, and, <laughs> and he's like, but you never lost him. You know, he's still a part of you. Um, and I think that what Theon needed was just, you know, some like a good punch in the shoulder and a, and a pat on the back from one of the, the dudes that he grew up with and idolized growing up. And to hear that, especially a about Ned coming from John, I think was really powerful for him and helped him find himself. Dude, I think it's just really awesome that we're still getting Ned Stark. <laughs> and in honor of that quote and Ned Stark and the memory of him still being alive, I'd like to play a audio clip of my high-content wolf dog, Greywind, um, you know, Duncan, you've mentioned him a few times in his Facebook page and whatnot. And so this is a clip that I recorded myself. So here it is. Okay, but seriously, where the hell is Ghost? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I feel you. I love the uh, the wolf dog wind up there too. Um, I used to do the same thing when I had the husky around. I would uh, I would start howling, and I would get him howling, and then Ollie the shepherd would start howling, and then the bird would start screeching, and it was a cacophony of chaos. Grey wind, the wolf dog, people. And considering Ned's quote about what happens to the lone the lone wolf, I'm glad he's got a pack. <laughs> Okay, so our next cool crossover is when Sansa is killing Littlefinger. And she thanks Littlefinger for all the lessons that he taught her. And this reminded me of the death of Miri Mazdur, who is the witch that told Daenerys, the witch who killed her husband, that told Daenerys that she was infertile and couldn't have kids. It, she thanked, um, when Danny killed Miri Mazdur, she thanked her the same way that Sansa thanked little finger in this scene so i thought that was a pretty cool book reference to anybody who was really paying attention did you notice that one i honestly did not <laughs> so that's that's pretty interesting i like that yeah the only reason i noticed it was because last week i read the scene at the end of still smug when the dragons are born and that's when um danny does that so <laughs> it was fresh on my mind otherwise yeah. i wouldn't have noticed that either <laughs> a game of thrones daenerys 10 the god's wife did not cry out as they dragged her to call Drogo's pyre and staked her down amidst his treasures. Danny poured the oil over the woman's head herself. I thank you, Miri Mazdur, she said, for the lessons you have taught me. 
You will not hear me scream, Miri responded as the oil dripped from her hair and soaked her clothing. I will, Danny said, but it is not your screams I want, only your life. I remember what you told me. Only death can pay for life. Miri Muzdur opened her mouth, but made no reply. As she stepped away, Danny saw that the contempt was gone from the Meiji's flat black eyes. In its place was something that might have been fear. Then there was nothing to be done but watch the sun and look for the first star. What have you got next for us, Crow? So, in this episode, we were finally revealed Jon Snow's true name, which is Aegon Targaryen. Throughout the book series, we are told of the many Aegons, and what would have been the sixth Aegon to take the throne had the mountain have not smashed their heads, well, uh, b both of their heads, Rhaegar had two children, um, against the wall. Uh, from a show watcher viewpoint only, you might not really be brushed up on the children of Rhaegar, or the prophecy and of young Griff. Um, from my interpretation, I believe that D&D sort of combined Jon Snow and young Griff a little bit, um, which I, I get, I get why they did that, but it'll be kind of funny if young Griff has a major, um, role in the series. Um, so here's what we have on Rhaegar and Aegon and young Griff. A Feast for Crows, Samwell 4. The healers of the Citadel are the best in the Seven Kingdoms, for a while I thought, I hoped, on Bravos, it had seemed possible that Aemon might recover. Zondu's talk of dragons had almost seemed to restore the old man to himself. That night he ate every bite Sam put before him. No one ever looked for a girl, he said. It was a prince that was promised, not a princess. Rhaegar, I thought. The smoke was from the fire that devoured Summerhall on the day of his birth. The salt from the tears shed for those who died. He shared my belief when he was young, but later he became persuaded that it was his own son who fulfilled the prophecy. For a comet had been seen above King's Landing on the night that Aegon was conceived, and Rhaegar was certain that the bleeding star had to be the comet. What fools we were, who thought ourselves so wise. The air crept into the translation. Dragons are neither male nor female. Barth saw the truth of that. But now one and now the other as changeable as flame. The language misled us all for a thousand years. Daenerys is the one, born amidst salt and smoke. The dragons prove it. Just talking of her seemed to make him stronger. I must go to her. I must. Would that I was even ten years younger. Oh man, so sad that Maester Aemon finally feels like he has a purpose right as he's about to die, and then does die. That's just brutal. But, um... Also, I told you guys to pay attention to Septon Barth, because he knows what's going on. A dance with dragons. Daenerys won. <laughs> Man wants to be king of the rabbits. He best wear a pair of old floppy rabbit ears. The floppy ears she chose today were made of sheer white linen with a fringe of golden tassels. With Jiqui's help, she wound the Takar around herself correctly on her third attempt. Eerie fetched her crown, wrought in the shape of a three-headed dragon of her house. Its coils were gold, its wings silver, its three heads ivory, onyx, and jade. Danny's neck and shoulders would be stiff and sore from the weight of it before the day was done. A crown should not sit easily on the head. One of her royal forebears had said that once. Some Aegon, but which one? Five Aegons had ruled the seven kingdoms of Westeros. 
There would have been a sixth, but the usurper's dogs had murdered her brother's son when he was still a babe at the breast. If he had lived, I might have married him. Aegon would have been closer to my age than Viserys. Danny had only been conceived when Aegon and his sister were murdered. Their father, her brother Rhaegar, perished even earlier, slain by the usurper on the trident. Her brother Viserys had died screaming in Vase Dothrak with a crown of molten gold on his head. They will kill me too if I allow it. The knives that slew my stalwart shield were meant for me. So interestingly here we get another connection with Daenerys talking about an incest marriage, and this one is to another son of Rhaegar's. So she's already considered and had accepted that she potentially would have been marrying a nephew of hers. So if that sheds any light into her views on the TV show, then she probably wouldn't have a problem marrying John. Unless she did have reservations in the first place about marrying a nephew like Aegon or something like that. But also, you have to consider the fact that she's fallen in love with Jon. So wonder how that would affect her or contradict her opinions on uh, marrying a nephew. A Dance with Dragons, The Lost Lord. Does he know, Griff wondered, how much did Miles tell him? Varys had been adamant about the need for secrecy. The plans that he and Illyrio had made with the Blackheart had been known to them alone. The rest of the company had been left ignorant. What they did not know could not let slip. That time was done, though. No man could have asked for a weatherer son, Griff said. But the lad is not of my blood, and his name is not Griff. My lords, I give you Aegon Targaryen, firstborn son of Rhaegar, Prince of Dragonstone, by Princess Elia of Dorne. Soon, with your help, to be Aegon, the sixth of his name, King of the Andals and the Roinar and the First Men, and the Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. Silence greeted his announcement. Someone cleared his throat. One of the coals refilled his wine cup from the flagons. Gors Edrin played one of the corkscrew ringlets and murmured something in the tongue of Griff did not know. Laswell Peak coughed. Mandrake and Lothstern exchanged a glance. They know, Griff realized then. They have known all along. He turned to Harry Strickland. When did you tell them? So, Sir Duncan, how do you feel about this? Do you think young Griff is a true Targaryen or a red herring? Or is he a Blackfire? I think he's a Blackfire, man. Um, all these connections with Varys being bald as an egg and the statue at outside of Illyrio Mopatis's manse in Bravos, is that where it is? Bravos. Bravos, yeah. Or Pentos? No, no Pentos. Pentos. Pentos, yes, yes. Um, yeah, with the, you know, he's got the statue that looks like a young, silver-haired warrior that he who he says is himself. That sort of hints that he may be of Blackfire lineage. Um, and you know, I mentioned the various being bald as an egg because that's a quote about egg on the fifth egg in the Duncan Egg novels who's described as being bald as an egg and Varys is the only other guy I think in the entire series who's described that way I think it's he so that he was described that way I think two or three times in the books oh yeah wouldn't surprise me and um, so that sort of hints at some Targaryen or Blackfire lineage there the secrecy I think points towards um, it being a, a Targaryen or, I mean a Blackfire connection so yeah, I'm, I definitely lean towards Aegon being a Blackfire fake Targaryen and his ascent 
being essentially a long con where he's been trained since birth to be like this great leader, um, whether or not he shows the signs of that is debatable, but they're trying to install him. Even it'd be the perfect coup. Even he thinks he's a Targaryen, but in reality, exactly. the Blackfires have won. You know, <laughs> finally after, after hundreds of years, years? Blackfires, yeah, they get their their man on the throne, and he doesn't even know it. It's yeah. total secret. Perfect Splinter Cell coup d'état, which you, would be awesome. If it goes that route, do you think they'd ever? Do you think he would ever find out that it was a a, a coup the whole time? Ah, oh, great question. I don't know if it if it would matter to them. I mean, I guess once everything is all said and done and the power structure is solidified that I would want, I mean, if I was a Blackfire, I would want my name to be, Blackfire. to be out there, yeah. you know, King Blackfire, <laughs> you know, it would be pretty awesome. So I, I assume that they would come clean yeah. um, and hope that his, you know, that everything that Aegon owes to them for his ascent, that he would forgive them uh, and not have them killed for their, <laughs> for their treachery. You treacherous bastards, you seed, seed me up here, and I'm not even a real yeah. Targaryen. <laughs> um, um, I don't think he's a, a red herring. Um, I have a few book reader friends um, who are like diehards. Um, shout out to my friends, Tony and Brian, um, who I believe both of them think that he's a red herring <laughs> interesting but i'm uh i'm like just a, as as in a total fake total fraud yeah just a total like they're just playing him up to be this this character no heritage no heritage at all yeah um, interesting so and i'm over here when I, while i was reading the book i'm like yeah yeah there's a targaryen you know in the seven kingdoms actually doing something <laughs> yeah I just enjoyed like the Blackfire Rebellion so much, learning about them in Dunkin' Egg and everything. That um, I think it'd be awesome to have, you know, a resurgence of the Blackfire name somehow. Yeah, and this is a perfect vessel to do it. It'd be great. I, I believe that they that the showrunners D and D they just took Young Griff and kind of added a little bit of him to John and kind of combined the characters for um, John Show. Uh, yeah, could be. <laughs> I say that a lot. John's show. Um, Johnny. And. Uh, John's show. <laughs> I just got that. Took yeah, it took me a second. <laughs> um, and then the same same with uh, Gendry um, as uh, Edric Storm, I believe is his name. Um, yeah. The, the other Yep, bastard. definitely combined those two. Yeah. Next interesting parallel is the concept of love being the death of duty. And at the end of the episode, love takes hold and John walks down the hallway to the cabin of Queen of Danny, the mother of dragons, on their ship heading to White Harbor. And uh, like I said, love takes hold at that, at that part. And Tyrion's face, <laughs> when he sees what's going down, it's, he's not stoked and the music is really ominous. And I think he's partly jealous, but I also think that he's seeing that the um, injection of uh, feelings and emotions into this situation may not be good to for their leaders to maintain their strategic mindsets um, for coordinating this fight and this, all the politics that's going on and everything. What do you think about this concept, The love that love is the death of duty? Yeah, I mean... 
I don't know. I'm still trying to wrap my head around on the uh, the whole concept of John and Danny actually being side by side finally. Because <laughs> I mean, you know, you you read the books for years and years and years, and Jon Snow is just still hanging out in the snow with all that blood. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> with all that blood. all that blood. Yeah. Yep. Um. So I don't. Know, yeah. I I can see it, yeah. Yeah, there was uh, Maester Eamon who had said that to John in the books. And uh, John seems to have have mixed feelings about the veracity of the concept, at least at first. Yeah, I think it was... I don't know, I don't know his attitude towards that really changed after Egret, I, I feel. Um, yeah, you're probably right. So it's, it's pretty interesting that he had succumbed to it at this point... Um, Especially given after what happened with Rob, and all the various examples and we've seen dad. of his real his dad. Re- yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah Rhaegar, <laughs> yeah, who, who uh, ran off with Lyanna and caused the downfall of his house and dynasty. Um, well, I guess not his dynasty because John survived. But yeah, pretty, uh, pretty interesting concept. So here's a passage from A Game of Thrones, John eight. John's fingers were in the bucket, blood up to the wrist. Darwin says the wildlings call us crows, he said uncertainly. The crow is the raven's poor cousin. They're both beggars and black, hated and misunderstood. John wished he understood what they were talking about and why. Why did he care about ravens and doves? If the old man had something to say to him, why couldn't he just say it? John! Did you ever wonder why the men of the Night's Watch take no wives and father no children? Maester Eamon asked. John shrugged. No. He scattered more meat. The fingers of his left hand were slimy with blood, and his right throbbed from the weight of the bucket. So they will not love, the old man answered, for love is the bane of honor, the death of duty. That did not sound right to John, yet he said nothing. The maester was a hundred years old, and a high officer of the Night's Watch. It was not his place to contradict him. The old man seemed to sense his doubts. Tell me, John, if the day should ever come when your lord father must needs choose between honor on the one hand, and those he loves on the other, what would he do? John hesitated. He wanted to say that Lord Eddard would never dishonor himself, not even for love. Yet inside a small, sly voice whispered, He fathered a bastard. Where was the honor in that? And your mother, what of his duty to her? He will not even say her name. He would do whatever was right, he said, ringingly to make up for his hesitation, no matter what. Then Lord Eddard is a man in ten thousand. Most of us are not so strong. What is honor compared to a woman's love? What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms? Or the memory of a brother's smile? Wind and words. Wind and words. We're only human. And the gods have fashioned us for love. That is our great glory and our great tragedy. The men who formed the Night's Watch knew that only their courage shielded the realm from the darkness to the north. They knew they must have no divided loyalties to weaken their resolve. So they vowed they would have no wives nor children. 
Yet brothers they had, and sisters, mothers who gave them birth, fathers who gave them names. They came from a hundred quarrelsome kingdoms, and they knew times may change, but men do not. So they pledged as well that the Night's Watch would take no part in the battles of the realms it guarded. They kept their pledge. When Aegon slew Black Heron and claimed his kingdom, Heron's brother was Lord Commander on the Wall, with ten thousand swords to hand. He did not march. In the days when the Seven Kingdoms were seven kingdoms, not a generation passed that three or four of them were not at war. The Watch took no part. When the Andals crossed the narrow sea and swept away the kingdoms of the first men, the sons of the fallen kings held true to their vows and remained at their posts. So it has always been, for years beyond counting, such as the price of honor. A craven can be as brave as any man when there is nothing to fear and we all do our duty when there is no cost to it. How easy it seems, then, to walk the path of honor. Yet soon or late in every man's life comes a day when it is not easy, a day when he must choose. Some of the ravens were still eating, long stringy bits of meat dangling from their beaks. The rest seemed to be watching him. John could feel the weight of all those tiny black eyes. And this is my day. Is that what you're saying? I really like that quote. Yeah, man, me too. So I'm worried that Tyrion is worried that their love may affect their duty to the realm in this case. I just, I like how he still goes off. <clears throat> you know, in, 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 the, uh, in the books and in the show, um, he's constantly trying to be like Ned. Um, yeah trying to hold to that honor to hold to his word um whatever was right he said ringingly to make up for his hesitation no matter what you know and so even though he knows that you know there was some fucked up shit going on there with with ned it seems that he still believes that he made those decisions because they were the right thing to do you know which we know they are which is cool yeah exactly um, i agree <laughs> Yeah, so I like that. Yeah, John totally idolizes Ned, and I'm hoping that when he finds out the truth, that his opinion of Ned isn't drast too drastically altered. You know, like he could he could find out and be like, "I'm not a bastard," you know. Yeah. He's, he fucking lied to me my whole life, and he could just go totally go dark. You know, like how crazy would that be? <laughs> John finds out the truth and like kills Daenerys and just goes and like joins the Night King. <laughs> Um, I think earlier in the week I saw a post about it doesn't matter who your real father is, you're still Ned Stark's son. Um, right. Which I think is still going to hold true to John, even when he does find out who he actually is. Yep, I agree. Our listener, Lady Ash, brings up the moment when Peter Baelish is dueling Brandon Stark for the for the love of Catelyn Tully. And Brandon basically destroys him in this duel and cuts him from navel to collarbone. And as he is 
crying out in pain as he's <laughs> falling in defeat. He calls out for Catelyn, and um, Ash, Lady Ash, mentions that this is a good parallel to Littlefinger's death in this scene, in this episode, when he calls out to Sansa as he's about to be killed. So, pretty interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree. Lady Ash, that was a good catch. Yeah, really good. I totally forgot about that, too. So, here is the quote from A Game of Thrones. A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 7. They met in the lower bailey of River Run. When Brandon saw that Peter wore only helm and breastplate and mail, he took off most of his armor. Peter had begged her for a favor he might wear, but she had turned him away. Her lord father promised her to Brandon Stark, and so it was to him that she gave her token, a pale blue hand scarf she had embroidered with the leaping trout of River Run. As she pressed it into his hand, she pleaded with him, He's only a foolish boy, but I have loved him like a brother. It would grieve me to see him die. And her betrothed looked at her with the cool gray eyes of a Stark and promised to spare the boy who loved her. That fight was over almost as soon as it began. Brandon was a man-grown, and he drove Littlefinger all the way across the bailey and down the water stair, raining steel on him with every step, until the boy was staggering and bleeding from a dozen wounds. Yield! he called more than once, but Peter would only shake his head and fight on grimly. When the river was lapping at their ankles, Brandon finally ended it, with a brutal backhand cut that bit through Peter's rings and leather into the soft flesh below the ribs, so deep that Catelyn was certain that the wound was mortal. He looked at her as he fell and murmured, Cat! as the bright blood came flowing out between his mailed fingers. She thought she had forgotten that. That was the last time she had seen his face, until the day she was brought before him in King's Landing. It's a really good catch, uh, Lady Ash. That's a good call. I'm, I'm impressed. Thanks for writing in. And as we saw in the, uh, the Dragon and the Wolf, his last word, his last fully intelligible word was Sansa. So our next interesting crossover isn't really so much of a book crossover, but just a cool um, observation that I heard being made on another podcast. I can't remember which, otherwise I would give them credit. Um, but it's just the fact that when, as Jamie is riding away from, from Cersei and leaving, the fact that he's, he covers his golden hand with a black glove and he's all garbed in black with a black cape, black everything, all black everything, um, and it sort of symbolizes how in, in accepting this fight against the undead as his cause at this point and honoring his pledge to ride north, how he and many other people are taking the side of humanity over the dead. And it's essentially equivalent to taking the black in terms of the night wa night's watch. So we're basically all the night's watch now. Um, and I thought that was a really cool <laughs> metaphor that's being expressed this whole season. Danny dressed in black, John in black, Jorah in black. Everybody's in black, and everybody's heading north to do the job of the Night's Watch, basically. So, and John even cool. says that when they're beyond the wall. Um, he does the, the short quote, uh, I am the shield that guards the realms of men. Um, right. So, I mean, he's just, that's just something that's constantly on his mind, even though he's no longer part of the Night's Watch. Yep, and now now we all are, everybody that's joined the cause, even though they're not Night's Watch and names, most of them have symbolically taken the black, <laughs> and uh, they're all the shield that guards the realms of men at this point. So Pretty do you, awesome. Do you think uh, in Jamie's vows, if he ever has to, you know, take those, uh, it, it'll be, I shall take no sister wife? 
<laughs> Father, no children. Although I guess Cersei's pregnant. <laughs> oh man, that's so funny. I, <laughs> good one, man. I, I didn't even thought of that. I shall take no sister wives. Father, no incest children. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty funny. I think they should modify that for him. Just special for him. They're gonna have to do a lot of modifying. I mean, now that the the army of the dead is through the wall. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So speaking of Jamie, it's finally happened on the TV show. Jamie has finally turned on Cersei. And good riddance, man, it took him long enough. You know, there were signs of him uh, starting to turn seasons ago, it seems. And it's finally, you know, she's pushed the boundaries too far. And Jamie has left her and headed north. So I'm sure that book readers were ecstatic to see this development, as I was. And uh, it's cool. Now we have two different ways that Jamie has turned on Cersei. Um, you know, obviously the way that it happened this week in the, in the TV show. But it happened a little bit differently in the books. It was when Cersei was imprisoned in the uh, by the High Sparrow. She had Kyburn come to visit her and had him send a raven to Jamie at River Run. Anything you want to say about the... Uh, book and show versions of how Jamie turns on Cersei? Um, you know, when I saw the snow falling in King's Landing and Jamie was just sort of, you know, admiring it, I guess, or noticing it, um, I instantly got a flashback to the books, um, where he's just holed up in River Run. And you know, I think this is the I think I think this is their book equivalent i think that's the route they're trying to go is like jamie in the books was turning his back on cersei through i think he threw the letter in the fire or crumpled it up yeah. or something and then in in the show now we just have him you know having his this big fight with her and then just taking off and heading for the north to go fight in the battle <laughs> i agree yeah it seems like the the books the moment he really turns against her is when he gets her letter and decides not to write back and then the show is like you said when when she turns on him and and plots behind his back and calls him stupid here and everybody is telling him like what the fuck Jamie fuck loyalty like this is a big, you know, <laughs> a bigger thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's hear the book version a feast for crows Cersei ten she licked her lips shivering. Come at once. Help me. Save me. I need you now as I've never needed you before. I love you. I love you. I love you. Come at once. As you command. I love you thrice. Thrice. She had to reach him. He will come. I know he will. He must. Jamie is my only hope. So damn, Cersei is desperate here. You know, saying I love you three times. Sending it in a raven, which inter if, if intercepted could be bad news and revealing their incest letting kyburn know everything by having him write this she is going to be super bummed when she finds out his response or lack thereof a feast for crows jamie seven there was a rap upon his door see who that is peck it was riverrun's old maester with a message clutched in his lined and wrinkled hand vimon's face was as pale as the new fallen snow i know jamie said there has been a white raven from the citadel. Winter has come. No, my lord. The bird was from King's Landing. I took the liberty. I, I did not know. 
He held the letter out. Jamie read it in the window seat, bathed in the light of that cold, white morning. Kyburn's words were terse and to the point. Circe's fevered and fervent. Come at once, she said. Help me. Save me. I need you now as I have never needed you before. I love you. I love you. I love you. Come at once. Vimon was hovering by the door, waiting, and Jamie sensed that Peck was watching too. Does my lord wish to answer? The maester asked, after a long silence. A snowflake landed on the letter. As it melted, the ink began to blur. Jamie rolled the parchment up again, as tight as one hand would allow, and handed it to Peck. No, he said. Put this in the fire. Damn! So they say the White Walkers bring the cold, but damn, Jamie is the Frost King here, man. <laughs> he, that is ice cold. Oh, shit. Good for him, though, man, because Cersei is not like, she is outrageous. What a witch. An evil, evil witch. So uh, it's good to see Jamie finally come around and, um, you know, ma making more progress towards that redemption. Lady Laura of House Sotelo wrote this week, said, I know a few peeps were irked that Rhaegar looked like Viserys in the flashback. I found this explanation, and it totally makes sense. So many details to keep track of, lol. Take a look at this passage from the books when Daenerys had a vision of Rhaegar Targaryen in the House of the Undying. Viserys was her first thought the next time she paused, but a second glance told her otherwise. The man had her brother's hair, but he was taller, and his eyes were a dark indigo rather than lilac. Great catch, Lady Laura. I went back and found the passage, and also thought there was some interesting stuff immediately surrounding that quote that's relevant to the episode. Um, and also it could explain why John is named Aegon, or was named Aegon. So here is the extended version of that passage from A, Ca A Clash of Kings, Daenerys 4. Finally, a great pair of bronze doors appeared to her left, grander than the rest. They swung open as she neared, and she had to stop and look. Beyond loomed a cavernous stone hall, the largest she had ever seen. The skulls of dead dragons looked down from its walls. Upon a towering barbed throne sat an old man in rich robes, an old man with dark eyes and long, silver-gray hair. "'Let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat,' he said to a man below him. "'Let him be king of ashes!' Drogon shrieked, his claws digging through silk and skin, but the king on his throne never heard, and Danny moved on. Viserys was her first thought the next time she paused, but a second glance told her otherwise. The man had her brother's hair, but he was taller, and his eyes were a dark indigo rather than lilac. Aegon, he said to a woman nursing a newborn babe in a great wooden bed, what better name for a king? Will you make a song for him? the woman asked. He has a song, the man replied. He is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. He looked up when he said it, and his eyes met Danny's, and it seemed as if he saw her standing there beyond the door. There must be one more, he said, though whether he was speaking to her or the woman in the bed, she could not say. The dragon has three heads. He went to the window seat, picked up a harp, and ran his fingers lightly over its silvery strings. Sweet sadness filled the room as man and wife and babe faded like the morning mist, only the music lingering behind to speed her on her way. So Crow, I guess there is book evidence to sort of reinforce their decision, D&D's decision to make Rhaegar look strikingly similar to Viserys. Yeah, honestly, I didn't have a problem with it. I 
I was like, oh, they're brothers, you know, they kind of, yeah, like, they probably all have the same sort of, you know, style and look and, um, you know, people take after one another. I mean, even though they weren't even related, look at Sansa and Cersei, you know, she's throwing her hair up the same way half the season or half the seasons <laughs> like her. Right. And, um, and talking about people taking after one another, um, Viserys was Rhaegar's younger brother exactly, and was young enough or old enough at the time that he left King's Landing to be aware and to have known Rhaegar. And so he probably has this mem- all these memories of his older brother who he idolized, who was like the greatest jouster and swordsman and just champion that, around at the time <laughs> aside from arthur dane who's on the same level mm-hmm. and but he the way he the, that uh viserys dresses is probably based on the way rhaegar dressed his hairdo is probably copying rhaegar because he idolized this guy so it's, it makes the character of viserys even more sad in retrospect now that we've seen rhaegar <laughs> that he was he was never even really his own person you know yeah he was just living in in the shadow of Rhaegar. To kind of contradict that whole thing that you just said, um, <laughs> and hopefully it's not too sad. But uh, Jon Snow and Ned Stark they got the same hairstyle going on ever since he oh yeah ever since he came back from the um, from the dead. <laughs> yeah, pretty much keeping the top pulled back. Yeah, and Arya is doing that too as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's interesting too. Um, he says that Aegon is like the perfect name for a king, mm-hmm. like uh, the only name for a king. And so maybe that's why Lyanna chose to name John Aegon when he was born in Rhaegar's absence, because she had been told this same thing by Rhaegar, that Aegon is the name, you know, like the perfect name for a king. So even though his first Aegon, that he already, even though he already had a kid named Aegon, it's possible that Lyanna had heard what happened, that he was killed, or that she just decided to go with Aegon again anyway because of Rhaegar's thoughts on the topic. And if there was a chance that he was going to be king, like Aegon was the name he deserved. So also in this uh, in this passage, Rhaegar is talking to Elia Martell and their child, the first Aegon, whose head was dashed against the wall by the mountain. And he's referring to him as a prince who was promised and that says that his is the song of ice and fire. But, you know, Rhaegar is not the best necessarily at interpreting prophecy. I mean, who is? He first thought that he himself was the prince that was promised. And then he thought that his firstborn son, Aegon, was the prince that was promised. Um, He was under the impression that the the prince who was promised would be born from the Ares-Raela line. So I think he was wrong both these times and that it's John or Aegon who's actually the prince that was promised. And if his is the song of ice and fire, that means that this is all really about John. So uh, I wonder what significance that has in terms of Danny and 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 uh, the other key players who are also thought to potentially be part of the song of ice and fire. You know, some people say John is ice, Danny's fire. So I wonder what this all means. What does it mean, George? So what do you how do you feel about uh the whole Cersei pregnancy thing? Do you think she's actually pregnant? A good question. Um she definitely seems to want people to think that she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. She wanted Jamie to think she's pregnant. Um she definitely telegraphed to Tyrion that she's pregnant by not drinking and putting her hand over her her belly. Um she was signaling it, you know, and he may, she may have been playing him by making him wanting you know, wanting him to think that she's pregnant. I have no idea. She could be pregnant. 
It just depends Dude, on how you... how well you believe the prophecy that is about her, you know? Right. And yeah, it's hilarious too because prophecies are supposed to be taken seriously in context of shows and stories like this, but they're bullshit, you know? So, yeah, <laughs> like, half you know, the time who knows they screw you over half the time. They screw you over. Right. <laughs> or they're just, yeah, you're trying to prepare for a prophecy and you end up causing it or it's just nonsense and you're wasting your time. I, I thought it was great how... Daenerys said in this episode, you know, I can't, I can't get pregnant. And John said, who told you that? And she says, the, the, the witch who killed my husband. It's like, oh, you ever, you know, think that maybe that's not a reliable source of information? <laughs> Which so makes that, sense. I mean, oh yeah. Like, you're going to her. Yeah. Plus like it's John calling bullshit on like the, the idea of prophecy and, um, which, which is, may be ironic if he's... Yeah, <laughs> I was about the, to say the same Azura. exact thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking great. <laughs> um, so our next book crossover is particularly exciting to me as a huge fan of the Hound, Sandor Clegane. And it's the topic of Sandor slaying his own brother. You know, he confronts the mountain at the meeting at the Dragon Pit, and it makes it um, quite obvious that he's coming for him. Yep, the, uh, the the quote that I played at the beginning of the episode, Sandor says to him, you know who's coming for you. You've always known. And so that alludes to Sandor's desire to murder his evil older brother, the mountain, who's just an awful person and who's done awful things his whole life. And we learn in one specific passage of Sandor's intent or desire to murder Gregor um, in the in the book series. And so I thought that that would be a pretty awesome passage to read right now. It's when Brienne arrives at the Quiet Isle with Septon Maribald, and she meets the elder brother who had found Sandor Clegane dying. A Feast for Crows, Brienne 6. Your Dornishman did not lie, the elder brother began. But I fear you did not understand him. You are chasing the wrong wolf, my lady. Eddard Stark had two daughters. It was the other one that Sandor Clegane made off with, the younger one. Are you, Stark? Brienne stared open-mouthed, astonished. You know this? Lady Sansa's sister is alive? Then, said the elder brother, now I do not know. She may have been amongst the children slain at salt pans. The words were a knife in her belly. No. Brienne thought. No, that would be too cruel. May have been. Meaning that you are not certain. I am certain that the child was with Sandor Clegane at the inn beside the crossroads, the one old Marsha Heddle used to keep before the lions hanged her. I am certain that they were on their way to salt pans. Beyond that, no. I do not know where she is, or even if she lives. There is one thing I do know, however. The man you hunt is dead. That was another shock. How did he die? By the sword, as he had lived. You know this for a certainty? I buried him myself. I can tell you where his grave lies, if you wish. I covered him with stones to keep the carrion-eaters from digging up his flesh, and set his helm atop the cairn to mark his final resting place. That was a grievous error. Some other wayfarer found my marker and claimed it for himself. The man who raped and killed at salt pans was not Sandor Clegane, though he may be as dangerous. The Riverlands are full of such scavengers. I will not call them wolves. Wolves are nobler than that. And so are dogs, I think. I know little of this man, Sandor Clegane. He was Prince Joffrey's sworn shield for many a year, 
and even here we would hear tell of his deeds, both good and ill. If even half of what we heard was true, this was a bitter, tormented soul, a sinner who mocked both gods and men. He served, but found no pride in service. He fought, but took no joy in victory. He drank, to drown his pain in a sea of wine. He did not love, nor was he loved himself. It was hate that drove him. Though he committed many sins, he never sought forgiveness. Where other men dream of love, or wealth, or glory, this man, Sandor Clegane, dreamed of slaying his own brother, a sin so terrible it makes me shudder, just to speak of it. Yet that was the bread that nourished him, the fuel that kept his fires burning. Ignoble as it was, the hope of seeing his brother's blood upon his blade was all the sad and angry creature lived for. And even that was taken from him when Prince Oberyn of Dorne stabbed Sir Gregor with a poisoned spear. "'You sound as if you pity him,' said Brienne. "'I did. You would have pitied him as well if you had seen him at the end. I came upon him by the trident, drawn by his cries of pain. He begged me for the gift of mercy, but I'm sworn not to kill again. Instead, I bathed his fevered brow with river water.' and gave him wine to drink and a poultice for his wounds, but my efforts were too little and too late. The hound died there in my arms. You may have seen a big black stallion in our stables. That was his war-horse, Stranger, a blasphemous name. We preferred to call him Driftwood, as he was found beside the river. I fear he has his former master's nature. The horse. She had seen the stallion, had heard it kicking, but she had not understood— Destriers were trained to kick and bite. In war they were a weapon, like the men who rode them, like the hound. "'It is true, then,' she said dully. "'Sandor Clegane is dead.' "'He is at rest,' the elder brother paused. "'You are young, child. I have counted four and forty name-days, which makes me more than twice your age, I think. Would it surprise you to learn that I was once a knight?' So the elder brother changes the topic pretty abruptly there after not exactly saying that the hound was dead, but saying he was at rest. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Clegane Bowl. Are you excited or are you a hater? I'm I'm excited. <laughs> I've been saying it I've been saying it for like two years now. I'm like, I just want I want Braun to get his castle and I want <laughs> that the you know, the Clegane Bowl to actually happen. Right. Yeah. Um, it's just it's so hyped up, like whether it happens in the books or the show or, I don't know, maybe some fans, you know, get together and film it and put it up on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Um, there's, It's interesting. There's so many people that are not hyped over Clegane Bowl. Like, they don't think that it makes sense or would fit or something. But this has been foreshadowed since season one of the show. I mean, the first time that we see the Hound, it's at the Hands Tourney in King's Landing. Um, you know, the tournament that Robert holds in Eddard's honor and mm -hmm. the mountain goes crazy and knocks sir loris off his horse after losing the joust and cuts the head off his own horse and starts ruthlessly attacking sir loris and the hound steps in to save loris from his evil older brother and is easily deflecting all the all the, mo the mountains monstrous swings and He's not doing anything offensive towards the mountain himself. He's just defending himself against this raging mountain. And it, mm -hmm. it ends when King Robert says, Enough! And he kind of just takes a knee, and the mountain's last 
swipe with his sword comes right over where the hound's head was and it's really close to cutting his fucking head off basically but that i think is the um the first obviously the first foreshadowing that we've got since since uh, the show started and i think that we're definitely getting it at this point it's going to happen well i mean since like you said season 1 you know it was never really actually finished so yeah. they just they got interrupted by King Robert. So. Yeah, we got to see how it ends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and obviously, his you know his brother caused his disfigurement. His whole life is leading up to revenge on this asshole. So I'm all for it. I mean, it's I, gonna happen. It would, I mean, I'm hoping that they do it in a way where it feels natural. You know, where the Hound may have to defend somebody, like like season one instead of instead of Sir Loras, who's obviously dead. Boom. Maybe he's <laughs> defending Arya, or maybe he's defending John or somebody from the mountain um, when Cersei unleashes him finally, and we get to see him taken out by the Hound. That'd be awesome. That would. I I like that idea. One of yeah. the things that I've been thinking about for like the last two years, or whenever the Clegane Bowl started circling the internet, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> was I'm like, well, what if they actually like. You know, they got all this fighting going on and zombies and all that kind of stuff. And meanwhile, here in the background, it's like them two just facing off like around all of these whites and white walkers. And, you know, oh, man, it's it would be like of all the times to be fighting your brother. Like that would be probably the worst time. <laughs> yeah, that would be freaking rad, though. That would be so <laughs> cool. Shitty for them. Awesome for us. What else you got to discuss, Crow? So, Duncan, having seen the very different change of plot from book to show, granted the show is a little bit ahead of the timeline compared to the books, um, I think we should bring up the fact that Sansa's current book status is a little bit different than her shows. Um, Sansa and Baelish have had a pretty wild ride, but the Battle of the Bastards may not even come into play if this storyline goes accordingly. Um, Harry the heir was never mentioned in the show, and little sweet Robin, or Robert in the books, is still alive and kicking and proud of his moon door. <laughs> so here's what we have on Harry the heir. A feast for crows, Elaine too. He did indeed, and soon after Sir Dennis left his pregnant Wynwood wife to ride to war. He died during the Battle of the Bells, of an excess of gallantry and an axe. When they told his lady of his death, she perished of grief, and her newborn soon followed. No matter. John Aaron had gotten himself a young wife during the war, one he had reason to believe fertile. He was very hopeful, I'm sure. But you and I know that all he ever got from Lysa were stillborns, miscarriages, and poor sweet Robin. Which brings us back to the five remaining daughters of Elis and Alice. The eldest had been left terribly scarred by the same pox that killed her sisters. So she became a scepter. Another was seduced by a self-stored. Sir Elise had cast her out, and she joined the Silent Sisters after her bastard died in infancy. The third wed to the Lord of the Paps, but proved barren. The fourth was on her way to the Riverlands to marry some bracken when burned men carried her off. That left the youngest, who wed a landed knight sworn to the Wainwoods, gave him a son that she named Harold, and perished. He turned her hand over lightly and kissed her wrist. So tell me, sweetling, who is Harry the heir? Her eyes widened. He is not Lady Wainwood's heir. He is Robert's heir. 
If Robert were to die... Peter arched an eyebrow. When Robert dies. Our poor, brave, sweet Robin is such a sickly boy. It is only a matter of time. When Robert dies, Harry the heir becomes Lord Harold, defender of the Vale, and Lord of the Eyrie. John Aaron's bannermen will never love me, nor our silly, shaking Robert, but they will love their young falcon. And when they come together for his wedding, and you come out with your long auburn hair, clad in a maiden's cloak of white and gray, with a direwolf emblazed on the back, why, every knight in the Vale will pledge his sword to win you back your birthright. So those are your gifts from me, my sweet Sansa. Harry the heir and Winterfell. That's worth another kiss now, don't you think? Well, 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 that is an interesting passage, especially in light of the changes they've made to the Peter Baelish story and the Sansa story on the TV show. Here we learn about Baelish's plot to have, you know, sweet Robin murdered or kill him to pave the way for Harry the heir to take over the Vale, marry Sansa, and retake Winterfell. Totally different than the way things happen on the TV show. You know, he doesn't marry her to Ramsay Bolton. He doesn't do these things that result in such awful things happening to Sansa. I, th I think Baelish could be more of an endgame player in, uh, in the books. I'm hoping it. so, at least. Too bad we won't get to see Aiden Gillen um, do it. <laughs> but so what do you what do you think about Harry the Heir versus our current plot? Like, what, a, what do you prefer? What do you think is significant? What are your thoughts on Harry the Heir in general? Um, you know, as as a book reader, I'm all for Harry the Heir. <laughs> um, mainly because when I first read that book, I wanted to see some action happening down in Winterfell. So it's like, I want to see this big battle of some sort, you know, taking back Winterfell. So um, you think that Harry the Heir may lead the fight to take back Winterfell. That's where you're going with it? I'm hoping, but, you know, usually how things go in the book series, somebody dies or, you know, or it might just yeah. be, or Martin might just completely flip it all around. <laughs> uh, Harry the Heir has spontaneously combusted. Be like, damn, that was our second drummer. There's <laughs> <Spider, laughs> a little tab. green globule <laughs> left on the, on the throne. <laughs> That's a great movie. Um. Yeah. What do you, what yeah, do you think about Harry the Heir? I had hadn't really thought much about it lately. Um, I mean, it would he would he would certainly be in a position of power to help out Sansa in the respect that Baelish was in in this in the show series. You know, Baelish comes in with the Knights of the Vale and everything. If if things work out according to plan, and Harry ends up being the heir of the Vale then that would put him in a position to be in control of their knights and soldiers. And they, uh, they're they one of the few, not kingdoms, but um, like lordships that has been basically completely left out of the War of the Five Kings. Lysa didn't send any soldiers to help anybody anywhere. So their, their armed forces are virtually intact. It could be a real valuable asset to whoever is in control of them. And Harry the Heir, with a loyalty to Sansa could make the difference to uh, getting back Winterfell. Mm -hmm. And I, I see, I still think that Baelish is doing his little thing, you know, playing his game and is potentially going to screw that up somehow. <laughs> so I think, yeah. I think Harry, the heir is also being manipulated. Oh man. Bastard Baelish. I'm sad that he died. I, 
I really love <laughs> Baelish and Aiden Gillen, the guy who plays him. I think has done a fantastic job. Oh, he was wonderful. He did a, I mean, throughout the seven, uh, I was going to say seven kingdoms, uh, <laughs> seven throughout the seven kingdoms. Uh, no, throughout <laughs> the seven seasons, like that actor is, I mean, I, I hated Littlefinger, but yeah, that's one, how you know he's, he's doing of, a great yeah, job. Yeah, that's how you know he's good. It's like Jack Gleason with uh, Joffrey. Like you, you hate yep. him, but he did such an amazing job at portraying that character. Um, yep, and I met Jack Gleason at um, I think New York Comic Con last year. Nicest guy, and, huh? <laughs> right, super super nice. It's so funny. But yeah, going back to Harry the Air, um, I, I I think he's just being manipulated. Um, but I would really love to see Harry riding in, just like we saw kind of at the Battle of the Bastards. Um, I don't. I'm not. I loved Battle of the Bastards, but I'm one of the people that believes that that won't actually happen in the book series. Um, wow, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't know. I see Martin um, and the way he does things, and I don't think he's going to follow through that exactly. I think John will be resurrected, but I don't think that. I, I think the Battle of the Bastards per se um, in the books is going to happen while John is still, like, recovering up on the wall. Um, right. Yeah, because he's dead. In the yeah, yeah, the he's just, yeah, he's in the <laughs> As snow. of right now, the Battle of the Bastards is canceled. Yeah, we will resume fighting next week. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, too, the, um, you know, the, the Battle of the Bastards at this point would sort of be instigated by Ramsay Bolton's insolent letter to the Night's Watch addressing John. Um they refer to it as the pink letter, right? Yeah, exactly. Where he talks about how Stannis is dead and he's caught Mance Raider and come bastard and I've got your sister, bastard, you bastard, you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> come and try to take Winterfell, bastard. Uh-huh. See, the, the, one of the things that um, leads me to believe that um, the Battle of the Bastards won't be started by Jon, um, and I don't even think it's going to be called Battle of the Bastards, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, sure. The, the main big battle. Um, I, I think Harry the Air is going to ride in, you know, they're going to do that fight. Um, you think he'll ride in Deus Ex Machina to, st to save Stannis? Stannis? Do you think Stannis is actually dead, um, as Ramsay says, or is he not to be trusted? I think Ramsay's people, just, you know, bullshit. I think he's just trying to, um, Just taunt him. And taunt him, yeah. Interesting, yeah, because people, you know, people question the veracity of the, the, pink letter in its entirety mm -hmm. whether or not stannis is dead at all um whether or not you know he found mance or any of this um it's a good question i ponder it myself the one thing i'm also um wondering about is how is john going to you so let's say he does get resurrected in the books how is he even going to raise an army that big i mean Sansa showed up and like that's essentially what kind of kickstarted that even though he didn't want to um in in the show she showed up and right even though he didn't want to um at first you know they started building and they started building this giant army to go do this but Sansa in the books right now is kind of um up in the veil <laughs> right and uh Oh, what's her name? I'm totally spacing her name at uh, Winterfell right now, pretending to be. Um, oh Sonic. yeah, fake Arya. Yeah, um, we can just yeah. call her fake Arya. I can't remember her yeah, name. Yeah, I'm spacing. It's it's, <laughs> it's, the, it's Sansa's friend, uh, Jean, Jean, Jean Poole. Poole. Or yeah, Jane, yeah. Jane Poole. Jane Poole. Jane Poole. 
It's been a while since I read that. So <laughs> Jean Grey. Yeah, Jean Grey pool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so like that's just another you know book show difference. It's they're in two totally different plots going on right now. Yeah, it's yeah, it's cool. I love how there's they're so different, and, and you know, one may mean something for the other, and something from the TV show may mean something for how things are going to play out in the books. Mm-hmm. And we're on our toes. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. That's the cool part about making thing making them so different. It's what I also like about The Walking Dead. To bring that up again in the parallel stories in alternate parallel universes is that no matter what happens, you can strongly suspect something will happen on the show after it happens in the books or vice versa, but you never know for sure. So you're always still on your toes. <laughs> it's cool. No matter what, you never know for sure what's going to happen. So one of our last book crossovers was how Daenerys made Cersei and everybody wait at the dragon pits, which was hilarious. She finally shows up on Drogon and makes this splashing, amazing entrance, entrance and Cersei's like, we've been here for some time, blah, 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 fucking bitch. <laughs> like, she wouldn't do the same thing. And uh, and it, it reminded me of how Renly made Stannis wait when Catelyn had showed up to treat with Renly and they had met Stannis before Stannis had killed Renly as the shadow demon birthed by Melisandre. A Clash of Kings, Catelyn three. Catelyn watched them come. Stannis it must be, yet that is not the Baratheon banner. It was a bright yellow, not the rich gold of Renly's standards, and the device it bore was red, though she could not make out its shape. Renly would be last to arrive. He had told her as much when she set out. He did not propose to mount his horse until he saw his brother well on his way. The first to arrive must wait on the other, and Renly would do no waiting. It is sort of a game kings play, she told herself. Well, she was no king, so she need not play it. Catelyn was practiced at waiting. So this is sort of an established tactic of um, of messing with your rivals or whatever in the Game of Thrones universe or the Song of Ice and Fire universe. And on a secondary note, it makes sense for Daenerys to wait to show up until Cersei arrives because the last time that people were waiting for Cersei, they all got blown up in a in an explosion of wildfire in the Great Sept of Baelor. So that's not what we want to happen to our Dragon Queen. Smart to make Cersei wait instead. Our final book crossover references the the discussion between John and Theon where John ends up telling Theon that he doesn't have to make that impossible choice between Greyjoy and Stark. He says, you're a Greyjoy and you're a Stark. And it reminded me of a book passage where it finally is, Theon finally admits that he, that he wanted to be a Stark the whole time. And that there was such a brutal, you know, it becomes apparent what a brutal position he was in. And it's when he's back at Winterfell as Reek, under Ramsey, and um, he he's with Barbary Dustin, who we talked about a couple episodes ago, who became the the lady of her house um, of her husband's house through marriage and then the death of her husband. But they're going down to the the crypts of Winterfell together. Um, she has Reek bring her down, and they have a little discussion where it, Theon's true feelings about the Starks come out. A dance with dragons, the Turncloak. Theon stumbled. Love them. I never... I took this castle from them, my lady. I had... 
had Bran and Rickon put to death, mounted their heads on spikes. I rode south with Rob Stark, fought beside him at the Whispering Wood and River Run, returned to the Iron Islands as his envoy to treat with your own father. Barrowton sent men with the young wolf as well. I gave him as few men as I dared, but I knew that I must needs give him some or risk the wrath of Winterfell. So I had my own eyes and ears in that host. They kept me well informed. I know who you are. I know what you are. Now answer my question. Why do you love the Starks? I... Theon put a gloved hand against a pillar. I wanted to be one of them. And never could. We have more in common than you know, my lord. But come. So Barbary Dustin had originally been betrothed to Brandon Stark and was madly in love with him um, before he was killed, obviously, by the Mad King. But this scene is really powerful and emotional for me. Um, Theon, having always wanted to be a Stark, and finally, after all the wrongdoings that he's that he's <laughs> perpetrated and after everything that he's done against the Stark family to have what he thinks is essentially a Stark, Jon Snow, tell him that he is a Stark, you know, and that he never lost Ned, that Ned is still a part of him. Um, it's all he needed to to move forward and get past everything that's been holding him back, and it really helped him find himself and realize who he is and, and what he can do in the future. And so it was a really powerful scene for me, and I, I think it was really, really well done, well acted, and meaningful in a lot of ways what i think i just heard some some ravens in the in the distance let's see if we have some scrolls we can read william steiner writes in saying r plus l equals j is a theory that has probably been around since 1996 when a game of thrones was first published brand's flashback has confirmed that this is the direction the show is taking but i don't think this means that the story is such a foregone conclusion for the book reader N plus A equals J is a theory that has been around just as long, and in my unpopular opinion, there is stronger evidence for. For those that don't know, N plus A equals J is the theory that Ned Stark and Ashara Dane are John's true parents. It is well known in the books that Ned and Ashara had a thing during the lead-up to Robert's Rebellion, and it is also known that Ashara was Ned's true love, and that Catelyn was an arranged marriage to help bolster Robert's cause. The evidence for R plus L equals J is mostly dream sequences and symbolism. Ned's fever dream, Danny's vision at the House of Undying. While most of the evidence for N plus A equals J is taken from direct quotes, the strongest passage that I can think of in support of N plus A equals J came directly from Ned's mouth to Catelyn's ears. A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 2. That cut deep. Ned would not speak of the mother. Not so much as a word, but a castle has no secrets, and Catelyn heard her maids repeating tales they heard from the lips of her husband's soldiers. They whispered of Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, deadliest of the seven knights of Ares Kingsguard, and of how their young lord had slain him in single combat. And they told how afterward Ned had carried Sir Arthur's sword back to the beautiful young sister who awaited him in a castle called Starfall on the shores of the Summer Sea. The Lady Ashara Dane, tall and fair, with haunting violet eyes. It had taken her a fortnight to marshal her courage, but finally, in bed one night, Catelyn had asked her husband the truth of it, asked him to his face. That was the only time in all their years that Ned had ever frightened her. Never ask me about John. 
he said, cold as ice. He is my blood, and that is all you need to know. And now I will learn where you heard that name, my lady. She had pledged to obey, she told him. And from that day on, the whispering had stopped, and Ashara Dane's name was never heard in Winterfell again. So, in a conversation about whispers regarding the Lady Ashara, Ned's response is, Never ask me about John. There is, of course, much more to this theory, but I don't want to take up more of Sir Dunk's time. But I will say that this theory is, in my opinion, more in line with GRRM's style, rather than going with the fantasy trope of the boy with a secret parentage who's actually a prince. Please send all hate mail to William Steiner on Facebook. I follow the Game of Microphones page, and I post there frequently and shouldn't be too hard to find. I'll be happy to debate you till the end of time. <laughs> I don't think there's any hate mail deserved here. I think it's a pretty valid theory. You know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, and uh, there's <laughs> there's a lot of different potential options here with who John really is, and there's evidence for both. So I, I'm, you know, I'm... I'm not going to take sides until we know the truth. I think that they're both perfectly valid theories. And just because one thing happened on the TV show definitely does not mean that it's canon for the books at all. I mean, I agree. There's lots of hints and evidence that R plus L equals J um, is true in the books. But there's also evidence, as William Sir William pointed out here, that there is, there's the, poss the possibility that Ned and Ashara created uh, John and Ashara Dane unfortunately is not around to help answer this question because upon hearing of her brother Sir Arthur's death she jumped from the tower of Starfall into the ocean if I remember correctly and obviously died our next raven comes from Sir Luke the low duke of Devonshire Sir Duncan, I hope this finds you well, and you have recovered from your surprise that all of our heroes remain alive and well after season seven. I haven't. I really thought Jamie was a goner for a moment. So did I, man. I really thought that Cersei was going to have him killed there. I'm definitely feeling a renewed sense of smugness about the books after this season, as the TV show seems to be slowly failing to live up to the narrative standard it set early on. Don't get me wrong, I love to watch the show. The actors play the parts so well, the music is fantastic, and who doesn't love CGI dragons? But there is sloppy storytelling going on here. A few key points stand out. First, the much-discussed speed travel some characters seem to have adopted. Second, did Littlefinger really not see that coming? I didn't, but he has been built up to be so good at scheming and people-playing. Third, Tyrion should really have known that Cersei will betray them. I was astonished when, after seeing literally only one white... She, Jamie, and the rest all got on the bandwagon. Sir Gregor is still walking around, after all, and no one seems to mind, <laughs> except Sandor, of course, and Arya. Finally, the main reason this relates to still smug book talk is the lack of the Horn of Winter, or some other way that the Night King could get around the wall with his army. In Season 7, Episode 6, it seemed that he was waiting for and planned to get at least one dragon. Now we can see, now we see he can use it to destroy the wall. On the show, I guess this is his best option, in which case it is entirely the stupid decision to go and capture a white, which gave the Night King the chance to come south. Is this how you see it? Was there another way the Night King could have made it past the wall? There are others, but most can be forgiven, I think. Also, Aegon. He's another Aegon! <laughs> cool. Although a bit weird if Rhaegar had already had a son, he called this. On the next Still Smug, could you catch me up on which Aegon he is? Sixth, seventh, I think, depending on whether the other one is counted. 
and what the other Aegons did of note? Naturally, some are more familiar than others. The Conqueror, for one, and Egg. Many thanks for your book talk. I enjoy your insights and readings. Yours faithfully, Sir Luke, the Low Duke of Devonshire. Thanks, Sir Luke, for writing in. Appreciate it. Um, I, I tend to agree with you that the plan to go up beyond the wall and capture a white is actually what enabled the what the Night King to get south in the first place. And it did seem that he was just waiting there already with the cha- with the chains and the uh, the spear to catch his or hunt and kill his own dragon. So it seems that he's some sort of green seer or has some type of similar abilities as Bran, especially considering they've they've you know connected within Bran's visions before. So something interesting is going on there. It's pretty cool. As far as whether John would be Aegon the sixth or seventh, I believe that Aegons are only or kings are only given a number of their name, first of his name, second of his name, etc. The moment that they're coronated and actually given the crown, so um, that would mean that Rhaegar's first son Aegon never officially was Aegon the sixth, and that would mean that John would be Aegon the sixth if he was crowned the uh, the king of the Seven Kingdoms. So let's do a quick little breakdown of who the Aegons were and what they're known for. Obviously, Aegon I was known for being the conqueror and laying waste to various armies across the Seven Kingdoms, forcing them to submit to his rule. Interestingly, Aegon II Targaryen um, could be looked at as a usurper, and actually that's how I view him. He was the sixth Targaryen king to sit the Iron Throne, succeeding his father Viserys I. And um, he was the result, his kingship was the result of what's now known as the Dance of the Dragons. Viserys I had named his daughter Rhaenyra to be his heir and the uh, the heiress to the Iron Throne. So upon his death, she should have been coronated queen. But his Viserys' second wife, Alicent Hightower, was not happy with this arrangement. And she wanted her son, Aegon, to take the, the, the crown. So after Viserys died and before Rhaenyra was coronated, a coup took place, essentially, where Aegon II was elevated to kingship, and the war called the Dance of the Dragons sort of um, resulted as a, you know, due to this coup. So eventually, when all the dust settled, Aegon II was, in fact, the king of the, second, of the Seven Kingdoms. Aegon III succeeded Aegon II, and interestingly, he was Aegon II's nephew. Ironically, the son of Rhaenyra Targaryen, who Aegon II had fought in the Dance of Dragons over the kingship. So even though Aegon II was the result of a coup, Aegon III, when the the crown was passed to him, um, the, the line of succession ended up being brought back to the same place it should have gone initially, So, which is pretty fascinating. As king, Aegon III strove to give the realm peace and plenty, but his coldness kept him from courting his lords and people. He's often blamed for the death of the last dragon, having, a, having a, had a great distaste for dragons after the tragic death of his dragon, Stormcloud, and because he witnessed his mother being devoured by Sunfire, which was Aegon II's dragon, if I remember correctly. So even though it's likely that the maesters may have played a role in the death of the last dragons, um, after the, the final dragon died, Aegon III became known as Aegon the Dragonbane. Um, and he was also known as Aegon the Younger, um, to keep him you know, distinct from Aegon II, who is known as Aegon the Elder. At the urging of 
Aegon the Dragonbane's brother, Prince Viserys, Aegon had at one time brought nine mages from Essos to attempt to hatch a clutch of dragon eggs with magic, but that tragically ended in failure. So Aegon III was often regarded as a broken king who ruled over a broken reign, but um, he did his best to keep the kingdoms together after the Dance of the Dragons, and notably after the death of the deaths of the dragons themselves, which arguably were the reason, <laughs> the impetus to that caused the, the seven kings of the kingdoms to kneel to Aegon I in the first place. Aegon IV Targaryen, also known as Aegon the Unworthy, was the 11th Targaryen to sit the Iron Throne. He's pretty much universally despised and is considered to be one of the worst Targaryen kings. He sired lots and lots of bastards, was just a bad dude overall, full of lust and hate, and um, eventually he legitimized all of his his bastards on his deathbed they became known as the great bastards and they included people such as Damon Blackfire, Bitter Steel, Brendan Rivers or Blood Raven and it was basically his his doing and giving his sword Blackfire to Damon and and legitimizing all these bastards that led to the series of five Blackfire rebe- rebellions so that's Aegon the 4th Targaryen father of the Blackfire rebellions basically Aegon V is our beloved Egg from the Duncan Egg novellas. Um, <laughs> he he was a squire to Sir Duncan the Tall in his youth and grew up, you know, amongst the small folk largely, which is uh, probably had a good effect on him and the way that he ruled. He became king after the great after a great council bypassed a number of candidates earlier on in the line of succession, including um, his elder brother Maester Aemon who had refused the throne and ended up going to um, the, the Night's Watch. He was the fourth son of Makar I, and uh, he was, due to his unlikely succession to kingship, he became known as Aegon the Unlikely. One of the first things that Aegon V did when he was crowned was to arrest Bloodraven, Lord Brynden Rivers, the Hand of the King, um, <laughs> for the murder of Aenys Blackfire as Brynden had offered him safe conduct to Westeros for the Great Council, but instead had Aenys executed when he arrived at the capital. So it's Egg who's responsible for sending Bloodraven to the Wall, which eventually led to him ending up under the tree beyond the Wall. So I'm sure Bran is thankful for that. Aside from that, Aegon V, the Unlikely, spent most of his reign dealing with the subsequent Blackfire rebellions and dealing with the mess of Aegon IV. Tragically, Aegon V, the Unlikely, Sir Duncan the Tall, and a number of other people all died together at the tragedy of Summerhall in a potential attempt to hatch dragon eggs. Our next raven comes from Sir Trevor of House Nelson. Hi, my name is Trevor Nelson. I have no knightly name yet. Haha, <laughs> yet. But I have some smug book talk pointers that I would love to share with you. I listened to all the Game of Thrones books more than I can count. And there's a lot that happened that you guys missed, and I was hoping to help. Right now, I just got done with book two again. I'm on book three right now, and on chapter 19, Sam, the fight at the fist. Sam is writing letters for the Lord Commander. He's writing multiple letters to send out when he hears the men yelling, and hears someone yell, a bloody huge, a giant. (laughs) And someone else yells, a bear. This is a dead bear. The fight is better when you read or listen, but from the TV show from Beyond the Wall, John and everyone else saw a dead bear, and it attacked them. 
Good catch. I totally forgot about that at the Fist of the First Men. Nice job, Trev. This is from book two, and Daenerys is at the House of the Undying. I can't recall all of what you said, but it's something like this. I saw a shadow dragon breathing black flames. Like I said, not the right words, but I believe this vision was her seeing the Night King on top of Viserion at the wall. I have more, and I would love to hear what you guys think. Big fan of your podcast and TV slash book. I would love to help out more, and sorry, not sorry, I will be sending more information for you guys to help out. Thanks for uh, the message, brother. Um, that's interesting. I totally forgot about the shadow dragon breathing black flames as well. I really wonder what that means. Yeah, maybe that could just symbolize a, a dragon turned to the dark side. Um, could very well foreshadow the Night's King being in possession of a dragon. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for writing in. I can't wait to, to hear more from you. Well, I think that pretty much wraps it up for today's Still Smug Book Talk. Damn, that was a doozy. I want to give another thanks to our friend um, Obsidian Crow, who's been kind enough to help out with Still Smug the past couple weeks and has been our guest host tonight. Thanks, Crow. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for bringing me back. I uh, I hope it's not another two years or so before the next season. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And if you're doing anything throughout or in between that, let me know, and I'm down. I'm on board. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. If you have any questions, theories, ideas, or feedback that would be more appropriate for this spoilery zone of Still Smug than the regular Game of Microphones podcast that involves book info or theories that may relate to the show, please don't hesitate to call in or email us. If you'd like to call, you can call us at 813-563-3739. That's 813-JOFFREY. And if you'd like to write in, you can email us at game at podcastica.com. And make sure you put still smug in the uh, in the subject line. I always forget to add that part. Also, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash G-O-M podcast. And don't forget to check out the other great podcasts at podcastica.com. This is Sir Duncan and Obsidian Crow signing off. Thanks, everybody, and Valar Morghulis. Ha, ha, ha.